0: This is Joshua Haddon with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Hi, Jason.
1: Hello, present and accounted for. Present. Thank you for introducing me.
0: What would your name be if, if you know the if Keegan Michael Key were playing the, the part of the substitute teacher and he's calling your name?
1: I think he would be sure to shout out Johnston Yelling. I think that would be, I don't think the Jason gives you much mileage, but I think Johnstone Yelling. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, we were just talking the other week about my tasting at the whiskey shop. Their announcement actually had me listed as Jason Johnston Yelling. (laughs) <laughs> and on the day when I was there pouring, uh-huh. I might have got a little am- animated. I don't think I was yelling at any stage. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I see that happening. So I think that would be the, uh, what's his name? Keegan Allen Michael Caine?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Keegan Allen Michael Caine. Uh, the British actor with the Cockney accent, him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Here. While I, was, while I mentioned the whiskey
1: shop a second ago, yeah. last uh, last episode, when you and I were chatting and I,
0: I name called some people that I'd met, once we'd stopped recording... You didn't like name call, like you weren't calling people names, you were name checking, right? <laughs> I was name calling people, like who's that? That's, he's a prick. <laughs> <She's> a... <laughs> I just want to make sure our listeners understand you weren't like name calling, you were name Checking, name dropping, and I, was, and I
1: was and I was yelling while I was name calling. So <laughs> I did. I lived up to advance billing. Uh-huh. Um, no, and, and I know that as soon as we get out of this recording, I'm going to do the same thing again, where I say, "Oh, there was that couple. I should have mentioned them, but I just wanted to to draw attention uh, back to my whiskey shop tasting. There was a couple, and they'd driven in from Sacramento, huh. just for my tasting, and they were going to make an evening of it in San Francisco because they were coming to San Francisco for my tasting or for yeah. my uh, my pouring that day and I remember the woman was called Christine because it's my mother's name okay and the gentleman was an M name mm-hmm. I don't think it was Morrissey because I think I would have remembered <laughs> that uh, <laughs> one for regular listeners there it was he was a Matthew or a Michael. And I do apologize to him that I'm just blanking on the particular M name that he was. Uh But I was so touched that they came in from Sacramento to San Francisco just for the tasting. It was really nice. And I I loved chatting to them and they were Mm -hmm. huge fans of the podcast and loved what they tasted on the day, bought some things uh, on the day. It was, it was really cool. And so I felt a little bad after you and I got out of the last episode that I didn't specifically uh, reference that couple. Uh, but like I say, I'm now going to get out of this recording. Yeah. I'm going to regret. Somebody else is going to jump into mine. Uh-huh. So for everybody who came out, I really, really appreciated it. You sure his name um, wasn't Mordecai? I'd, I'd, again, I would have remembered that because that's what I wanted to call our eldest son. Oh. I wanted to go with Mordecai. And tomorrow, my wife, wanted to go with Malachi, oh, and Jesus. the one thing that we agreed upon was Kai. And so he got the name Kai, C-A-I, and his Hebrew name is Chai, C-H-A-I.
0: Wow.
1: There you go. Anywho, before I was rudely derailed sorry, there, sorry, I was going to thing. set you up. I was going to transition you. Oh, oh, okay. I know. You ready for your transition?
0: I've...
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't say any words, Joshua, because I know the types of words that you say.
0: Oh, gosh, all the words. Go on, please. I'm ready to transition. We, Mm
1: -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. were just in Chicago this week, and you had a chance to meet people who are fans of the podcast and fans of Single Cast Nation, Yes, and I know that our dear, dear friend who we name check... All the time, Michael Nolan was in attendance, mm-hmm. but I think I
0: saw Ford Ray was going to be there. Yep, yep. So, uh, so we had Michael Nolan there, uh, who we've mentioned on the podcast before, and Mr. He, Glenn Berge himself, Mr. Glen. Yeah, the, for any listeners who is who have had our Glenn Berge twenty year old, or who have been interested in our Glenn Berge twenty year old, the number one reason we bottled Glenn Berge was for our friend Michael Nolan because that is his favorite uh, distillery. That's what he looks for when he looks for independently bottled whiskeys. You know who showed up? And just like your couple, Christine and uh, Mordechai, uh, Aaron Stein, who... Oh, yes, yep. He moved to San Francisco and flew in just for the event. Whoa.
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) He was like, I am not going to Johnston Yelling. I will only, <laughs> only attend Joshua Hatton. Uh-huh, That's uh-huh. the only way this works. Yeah.
0: And, uh, and so... There's actually so,
1: a very good chance Ehrenstein reaches out and says he was at the whiskey shop and I've just done him a terrible disservice by forgetting that he introduced himself. <laughs> this is going to get embarrassing real fast. Oh God, I have so much to
0: apologize for. <laughs> uh, let's see, Dan Gryson, also a big fan oh, yeah. of the podcast. He's come to yep. the Jubilees as well. Uh, and he's sent yeah, we've in. Name checked Tim on the pod a few him. times. Uh, Ford Ray, as you had mentioned before. Awesome. And. Tim Rod, I think, had wanted to be there. Michael Bloom was there. He had wanted to be. Um, Michael Gore uh, showed oh, up. Yes. And yeah, there were a lot of people who wanted to be at this event. But uh, just like Kim Kardashian's butt. Uh, the, oh boy. the the tickets hold on tight. The ticket sales for this event apparently broke the internet because it sold out <laughs> in 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 minutes. And 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 <laughs> you know, I've, I have called you an ass many
1: many times. <laughs> the fact that I can now legitimately use your words to call you Kim Kardashian's ass mm. makes me incredibly happy this day.
0: I, I, I always thought you were complimenting me on my derriere. <laughs> Okay, I would hear you say, Oof, "What an ass!" Like, oh, thank you, thank you. You did much.
1: always say thank you. I was always surprised by that.
0: I was always surprised. You just it seemingly cannot stop looking at my uh, my rear end. But you know that's okay. That's okay. Wow, things have become much clearer this day. They have been become much. <laughs> everything's becoming clear except <laughs> for uh, the English words coming out my mouth. Those Perfection. are not clear. Those are not clear. Perfection. That tracks. Mm. So what did you pour? Oh, right. I So we have eight whiskeys from our fifth release, and I mm-hmm. poured seven of the eight whiskeys. Yeah. I only
1: got to pour six in San Francisco. I can see why Aaron Stein flew to Chicago. And do you want to know what the favorites were? Oh, well, I, I do know the answer because I read your texts, oh. and I read Michael Nolan's texts. <laughs> <laughs> I know the Lechig fifteen
0: won the night. It won the night. It sold out at that shop. Excuse wow. me, immediately. So much so that that they want to order in another couple of cases. So brilliant. Should we brilliant. say which shop you were pouring at? Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's smart. So <laughs> we were at Warehouse Liquors, uh, which is in Chicago. It's on South Wabash, and that is run by our friend Gene uh, Charness, a dear friend of ours and he is known especially within the bourbon community to have one of the finest palates as far as picking bourbon casks goes and how should i say this you and i this is how i should say poorly. this poorly poorly you and i actually took a page from jean's playbook with release number 5 okay and i'll and i'll explain this one of the things that i really enjoy about going to visit Gene at Warehouse is, you know, here I here I am as the whiskey salesman, and I bring in my spirits bag, which every, every because everybody listened to the previous episode where we described what a spirits bag is. Everybody knows <laughs> what it is.
1: And for those keeping track at home, you do now have a new spirits bag. If that's important to stay up to <laughs> speed on these things, we'll see how long this uh-huh. one lasts.
0: So going going to see Gene. I'm there as the whiskey salesman trying to sell him whiskey, and a good portion of my time is spent him pouring me his own whiskeys in the the different barrels that he's picked. It's true. Oh, boy. That's the loudest anal plug removal I've ever heard.
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Tell you what, I do feel better.
0: (laughs) And, and so when, when you taste with Gene, he always picks at least two from the same distillery. So he says, try this Four Roses, now try this one. Ah, and it becomes okay, okay. point counterpoint. Mm-hmm. And he'll do that with his Russells. He'll do that with his Weller picks and, and his Buffalo Trace picks, his Eagle Rare picks and, and so on. And so with release number five, you know, you and I did the same thing. Point-counterpoint, Kleinleach 9-year-old, Kleinleach 23-year-old, LeChig 13-year-old, LeChig 15-year-old, and then you had bourbon cask to sherry and, and so on. So, yep, it's, I, I don't know, I don't think we did that consciously, but when we talked about the selections for our release number five, it really made sense. Like, oh, this is this'll be a really good point counterpoint. And then when I went to meet with Gene before the tasting, he tasted me on a bunch of his bourbons. He did it again with me. It was like, here's this for <laughs> roses, now here's this for roses and I thought to myself, I think we subconsciously just pulled a pulled a page from the Gene playbook. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so you would have poured the Cameron Bridge, the Bergey, The two Clinlish and the two LeChig. What was the
0: seventh that you poured? Imperial.
1: You did? Okay, I didn't know if you poured Imperial or Port Dundas. Okay. Yeah, so, So, go ahead. So, given that we didn't pull any Imperial samples in California, Mm. you must have picked up an Imperial off a shelf.
0: I purchased it with my own money, and I opened my own bottle. And then you poured that... For the group, and so I'm curious how did it how did it resonate with folk? It was the opening dram. If you think about all of those other whiskies, uh, the Imperial, by comparison, is perhaps the mo the more delicate and nuanced whiskey of mm. the group, and it, I think it went over really well. It was the favorite of maybe three or four of the people in the group, and i I could be wrong, but I think with the exception of two people, we had we had close to thirty seven people in the room. Uh, I think it was thirty eight and mm. I think two of the thirty eight people in the room have ever heard of or tried imperial. okay, and so it was okay. a new distillery to share with people brilliant uh, which 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 was great, and I got to talk about. Why it was one of my favorites, why it was sad the distillery was was demolished, but there's a new distillery in its place. pouring the Imperial, pouring the Glenburgie, you know, pouring the the Klein as well, gave me the opportunity to say, here are distilleries that you you may or may not have heard of. You may or may not have had whiskey from um, knowingly, but you will have likely mm-hmm. have had them if you had, johnny walker or if you had ballantines or if you had chivas regal you know these are backbone malts to some of these blends and and got to talk a little bit about why they'd want to use these you know there's blends want to use solid whiskeys that are all that are consistently that are consistently good and that are and that are consistent which I think is is in a way a bit of a nod and a bit of um, a tease to our guest today, uh, Jane Bowie, uh, who is in charge of maturation at Maker's Mark, and I mean Maker's Mark is known for having one of the most consistent bourbons out there, and she talks about it in a little bit, and I and I know we'll intro her in a moment, but listening back to her to her interview where she talked about that you know the the barrel program they do where you can design your own pick mm-hmm. the the reason why they don't do single cask picks for anybody is the casks <laughs> are too consistent there's not enough variation from cask to cask to cask to make it an interesting or viable program for shop owners and so they had to develop you know these these special maker's picks where they add in the the different staves to add in more flavor to the whiskey. I thought that was so, so very interesting.
1: Yeah, no. And I've, I've said it in, in various social media places that I was fortunate to spend a, a full morning with Jane. She, she cleared her schedule for my visit, which was very, very kind.
0: That's yeah, incredible.
1: And and spending time with her, she was just fascinating. Um, it doesn't make it into the audio because I hadn't set up yet. But when I first got there, we drove up to the water source. Checked oh. out the water source. Wow. Uh, and and bumped into Denny Potter, who's moved from Heaven Hill back to Maker's Mark. Oh, that's and, fantastic. And the distillery was on shutdown. But he took me around. Uh, me and Jane wandered around with Denny. And he was pointing out this addition that they're making, this change that they're making. Um, you know, you know, changes being updates. Mm-hmm. And and it was just wonderful getting a chance to to speak with him. But as we're, the three of us are having this conversation, Jane just kept throwing in all these wonderful insights. And at one point, I turned to her and said, "We have to get a microphone in front of you, stat." because I felt like you know what it's like when you you have a conversation with somebody and and you you say a bunch of really great things when you then sit down for the interview portion you don't necessarily revisit the great things that you already said because you think yeah. oh, they're already in the in the ether right mm. and so I was like nope we're gonna come back to that we're gonna come back to this and and so we did uh, I was very careful in going through the interview with Jane and it at one point, she said, I'm, I'm talking too much. I said, no, you're absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, everything you're saying is incredibly interesting and yeah. fascinating. And, and at times she was a little worried that she was getting too geeky or too nerdy. I said, nope, that's our listenership. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the type of information they want. Uh, don't hold yourself back in any way. And, and she didn't. No she didn't, questions yeah. were off the table. Uh, every answer she gave was thorough. And, and it, was, it was just fantastic. And, and once I left and I texted you and I said, I just had the most incredible interview with Jane Bowie. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I said, it's as good as it gets. And so here we are. I was on cloud nine afterwards uh, to, to such an extent that when I came home from Kentucky, I, I did a, a blind Taste test. And I post I posted a portion of this on, on Instagram. I didn't post the whole thing. I think I
0: recall the picture. Yeah.
1: Right? And so my picture was Makers Mark 101, mm-hmm. which is a distillery only and and uh, travel retail exclusive. Mm-hmm. And one particular batch of Makers Mark Cask Strength mm-hmm. and Makers Mark 46. And what I what I didn't post on the social media is there was a fourth? Ooh. There, there was a wild turkey one hundred
0: and one. And oh, so you're doing a one hundred and one <laughs> against one hundred and one. So
1: I had my wife pour my wife. all four whiskeys while I was out of the room, and and then she wrote down the order of oh, okay. the pours, yeah, and left them underneath the bottles. And then when I got the all clear, I came back in and I, I tasted through the four. And and I was thinking to myself, well, one's going to be cast strength, so that's going to be easy to find. One's going to be French oak, so there's going to be a French oak spiciness, that's going to mm-hmm. be easy to find. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one, one of the 101s has rye, and one of the 101s doesn't have rye. And so I'll find the one with the brown spice, that'll be the wild turkey, and then that'll leave the, the Maker's Mark 101. As, as the one without uh-huh. the rye. Right. And? It wasn't as easy as that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there were moments when the alcohol strength of a cask strength presented a spiciness on the palate mm. that could have been a French oak spiciness. Then you're looking for a French oak spiciness different from a rye spiciness, but you're looking for spiciness in both instances. And so at one point I thought, oh, I've really screwed the pooch here. This was a terrible idea. I don't know what I was thinking. And um, <laughs> and as any, as any good industry professional does, uh-huh. I stuck with it okay. and, and I, I kept going back and forth and I, I, I went one by one, I paid close attention to the nose, the palate, the finish, And I wrote down my list. And I got all four correct. Whoa, look at you, (laughs) look at you. And in the interest of full disclosure, when I was writing my list, I was saying to myself, it doesn't matter if you don't get any of these right. You don't need to tell anybody. This is just between you and yourself. (laughs) However, my eldest kid, when he went off to bed, he was like, Dad tell me in the morning how you did. And so I'm sitting there like, oh gosh, what am I going to tell him in the morning when I totally screw this up? And so when I got all four correct, I was like, yes, I can tell my child that yeah. I got four out of four. I'm eh? so proud of myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is where you say, this is why they pay me the big bucks, kid. <laughs> um, what, what our listeners don't know is the bottles were sitting on a glass table and you had a mirror on your foot. How dare you? How dare you, sir? How dare you? (laughs) You damn bastard. Um, Yeah, I just like speaking truths. But anyway, continue. let, let
1: Let me say one more thing and then you can either ask me a question or we can throw it over to Jane Bowie here. But that... That squeaking that I had earlier when I was pulling the cork. I was going to ask what it was, yeah. Yes. As you were talking about the LeChig 15 winning the night and selling out, I had to pour the LeChig 15 Ah. uh, and revisit it for myself. Um, It's interesting. You know I love LeChig. The listeners know I love LeChig. I have a small collection of independently bottled LeChig. Anytime we get LeChig samples is a fantastic, fantastic day. I love, love, love this LeChig 15. It's not my favorite of the eight that we released, which is which is a high bar,
0: right? I, I, which I it is a very right. high bar, right. uh, and and interesting that in so many settings it is other people's favorites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, having said that, because I have a favorite in in our eight as well, what's mm-hmm. your favorite out of the eight?
1: The Clinlish nine.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, Clinlish nine and First Fill Bourbon Highland Malt. Yeah. I just.
0: It's so fruity. It's so malty. I, d- yeah.
1: I don't have enough Highland malts. I look at my collection, I don't have enough Highland malts. Mm. It's just that simple. It always gravitates over to Speyside. And you always end up within the subcategory. And having a first fill bourbon Highland Clinlish yeah. that's still young, vibrant, expressive. Yeah, absolutely love, love, love the Clinlish 9. Fair enough. But but I would not kick the LeChig 15 out of bed for getting crumbs in the sheets. <laughs>
0: all right Right and yours sir uh by default it has to be the imperial 23 year old (laughs) but right because this is it's my second favorite distillery it's something that i've surely wanted to bottle since we started the company and i know you you wanted to bottle one Probably more for me than anything, but you—you you definitely want. I like to. you to be happy, Joshua. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But interestingly, because ex bourbon cask maturation is my favorite, mm-hmm. I also have a, a soft spot for old style, like old school sherry matured whiskeys. You know, that that really mm. make you feel as if you're drinking something that could have been released in the sixties or seventies. And to me, that's what our Kleinleash twenty three year old is like. <laughs> you know, similar to our Benevis twenty year old. It's this yeah. old school, yeah. old style scotch whiskey yeah. that you don't often see these days. And and that one I just feel really proud. You know, we we went eight years without having any Kleinleash offered <laughs> to us. Yeah. And then yeah. we had a couple offered to us and they were both delicious in their own yep. rights. And yeah, I love the fact they're completely different from each other. Completely different. And there simply isn't a lot of shared Klein Kleinleash out there. You know, there was there was a period in time where the markets seemed to be flooded with nineteen ninety seven Kleinleash and and every bottler was bottling some, but it was all ex-bourbon. Hmm. And and so it was nice to put a little sherried leash out there.
1: Well, and I and I would I would make one more statement, and then we can mm-hmm. press on. Mm-hmm. Nobody should sleep
0: on the Glenbergie either. Oh my gosh, no. That one was because, a surprise to the group the other day.
1: Right. And it was this exact same in California. It was a surprise to so many people. I you know, I just talked a moment ago about gravitating back to spaceside. Mm-hmm. And so here we are gravitating back to side, but it's a Glenburgie which almost nobody's heard of in ex bourbon. Mm. And you just get those, and I said that last episode as well, but you just get those nice big malty notes mm. from the the grain, mm-hmm. but then this wonderful tropical fruit explosion on the palate, which it just kind of came out of left field for me. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Well, you know, rich, grassy, we said yeah. this last episode, yeah. you don't see those two together. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to keep it brief, but nobody should sleep on the Glen
0: either. At all. So I, w- I want to kick it over to Jane. But uh, before we do, I know you took some questions from some Single Cast Nation members and you included them in the in your overall conversation with Jane. And I yep. wonder if you could just share... Because you didn't share the names during your conversation. If you could just share the names here, let people know.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. more than happy to. Uh, thanks to John Spaulding, Philippe Fanavong, Alex Coffin, and Ford Ray. Uh, they framed some questions for me that I folded into the interview with Jane and covered them naturally as we went through the conversation.
0: It was a really great conversation. And I told you this before we started recording. I listened to the first half last night. I listened to the second half this morning. And I would have finished the all of it last night. I was just so fucking exhausted. But what I loved about it is it flew by. I was a fly on the wall listening to a good geeky whiskey conversation. And so like what we've done In some previous episodes, we're basically, I mean, we're going to separate out a couple of bits that that we want to really highlight. But for the most part, we're going to take about 45, 50 minutes of a conversation between you and Jane and drop it in here. And uh, hopefully the listeners will appreciate it the way that I did, where it just seemed as if you're hanging out with people, drinking and listening to them talk and just being fascinated <laughs> by the conversation. Perfect, if you hear us taking sips, it's
1: water and coffee. If you hear us getting giggly, it's just because we were having a good conversation. Uh, there was no alcohol <laughs> passing our lips during this conversation, amazingly.
0: Hmm, that's a that's a sad statement, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> to hear that.
1: You lived overseas for a while.
0: Yes. Um,
1: I know the London connection, you were saying earlier, five years in London.
0: Yes. Were
1: there other countries involved when you were living overseas?
2: Um, with Maker's Mark, no. I I, I did work for Maker's. Um, my first year at Maker's Mark, I worked in nine different countries, mm. uh, large territory. Uh, <laughs> and then I have I have launched the brand in a few different places, but. Pre, my life pre-Maker's Mark. Um, I did. I lived in Japan a couple years right after college. Wow.
1: What took you to Japan?
2: Uh, not wanting to have a real job in America and <laughs> disappoint my dad. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I taught English. I, I wanted to travel and it was a good job and it was an opportunity to go see the world. And what's funny, I've always been drawn to education. My mom was an educator um, and I... I always assumed. My grandma was a history professor, my stepfather ran the deaf and blind schools in Kentucky. I always assumed I would go into education, and I did, yes,
1: you did. but
2: just in a totally <laughs> different way. Right. Um, so,
1: yeah. It's funny to me how alcohol has such a close relationship with teachers and educators. There's still that same level of passion. Uh, there's still that willingness to communicate something to somebody who doesn't know it. Um, and there's also booze, which is rather wonderful about this job. It
2: is. And in the history. Um, I love history. And I think it's what really originally drew me to the bourbon industry is the rich mm. history. And I'm a Kentuckian, so uh, we're very proud people, Kentuckians. <laughs> so it's such a part of the fabric of the makeup of Kentucky.
1: Fantastic. So, so from being overseas... Um, again, from the same source online, there's a <laughs> wonderful story about you sending a letter to Maker's Mark that they should hire you.
2: So my mom takes credit for this. I'm gonna <laughs> Please show tell my, me the story. I'm going to show my age a little bit. Um, I had got out of college or university for our, for our friends over the seas uh, and traveled and came home and was out of money and uh, working and, and the plan was to go be a rafting guide in New Zealand because it seemed like the thing to do. I yeah, the goal was to not get a job till I was thirty. Okay, that was the goal. And um, my mom cut out a newspaper clipping <laughs> and said, "Maker's Mark is hiring. We love Maker's Mark." Ah. You know, not so subtle. Uh-huh. Go get a fucking job. So <laughs> maybe I'm not allowed to use profanity. I you
1: apologize. are on the podcast. It's up to you if you want to um, swear away. So.
2: The job was for an event coordinator. And I always tell everyone, you don't know me. I'm the least organized person in the entire world. Like, I wouldn't let me plan anything. Um, I just, uh, you know, I it's not my thing. Like, uh, so I said, I don't really want this job. And, and I thought, I'm going to apply just to ap- appease my mom, right? We've all been there. Yeah. So I wrote a letter and my opening line was, I don't want this job. <laughs> And I'd spent three years, uh, traveling, um, around the world. And I, I love travel, but Kentucky's home. There's this great quote from happy Chandler about I've never met a Kentuckian that wasn't, um, planning or thinking about going home. There's something about this place; People just love it. So, you know, Kentucky was home and I thought I would love a job where I could take Kentucky to the world. Like people don't know how amazing this state is like, it, you know, we get yeah. an, an Appalachian reputation sometimes. And, um, and so I wrote this in this letter and I dropped my application and letter off at the Makers Mark office in Louisville a week late after the application <laughs> <laughs> had closed. <laughs> so I feel like there's no way this is ha- like anything's happening. And, uh, Rob Samuel's called. Um, and the hiring manager for the event job had passed. My letter and resume to him, and he was kind of quietly looking and thinking about hiring someone local to go help him start seeding Maker's Mark overseas globally. And
1: tiny, you were that
2: person. I was that person. Can you believe that?
1: Did Did he ever bring up to you the fact that you opened with "I do not want this job"?
2: They, uh, if you know Robin Bill. Now that I know them, they probably loved that. They're very out of the box in their thinking and methods, and they're kind of insane if you if you uh, are looking from the outside. I mean, they're genius. But So I think he probably loved that. Uh, but yeah, so 12 and a half years later,
1: <laughs> I've hung around. So, so when you started then representing Maker's Mark, representing Kentucky, traveling globally, what did bourbon look like? So this would have been two thousand and six, two thousand
2: and seven. This was um, two thousand and seven. Okay. I started in March of two thousand
1: and seven. Okay. So what did what did bourbon look like then? What did you encounter as you went around the world?
2: Jack Daniels. Okay. It was it was Jack and Jim, and it was who got to market first, and it was. Uh, you know depending on the continent and the country, so the UK for example, it was very heavily Jack Daniels, it was scotch, was whiskey, and anything else was just not whiskey, right? Mm -hmm. So I always tell people what I loved about those early days, there were a few things I loved. It really wasn't being a maker's ambassador, it was being a bourbon ambassador. Sure. You had to start with, this is what bourbon is. And then I'm going to take you through to my brand. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a drink at a time. It wasn't even a bottle at a time. Um, It was, I never went anywhere without a bottle of makers on me. I'm still conditioned. Like there's a bottle in my purse right now, guaranteed. (laughs) Um, And it was, but I, I'll tell you, I was 25 at the time and this 25 year old shit show girl from Kentucky, you know rocking up, I I quickly had to get really serious about education levels because there's no cre- I even today you look at me or talk to me, you're like, this girl doesn't know anything, right? Like there's just no credi- <laughs> credibility. We're about to prove that wrong. I but, know what's coming. Uh, but so I think uh, it was it was challenging, but it was so much fun. And it was very bartender focused at that time Mm -hmm. you know you kind of build brands and the on premise is the traditional idea so it was really just hanging out in bars and talking about whiskey and it was it was the dream job and a lot and setting up distributorships and training and um but i loved it it was i couldn't believe they paid me they could have not paid me they didn't know that they could have not paid me and (laughs) they, they could have just covered cost of living i would have been fine
1: did your mom ever reach out to wonder what she'd pushed you into or what she'd helped lead you to when you're hanging out in bars all the
2: time? My parents are big time bourbon drinkers. <laughs> They've been sitting in the catbird seat ever since. So they love it. Awesome. Um, grandparents, teetotalers, cause I grew up in a dry town. So a little less. So,
1: ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then talk to me about what did you see in your years in that global ambassador position? How did you then start to see the rise of bourbon as we now understand this bourbon craze.
2: You know, at the very beginning, you found pockets of kind of cult followings wherever you went. And there were key people, right? It was so funny. I would I would show up in a new country and and they're like, Bourbon, you gotta go talk to this guy. Ah. And and there were kind of identified experts mm-hmm. in each country that were the Burb, they were known as the Bourbon people. And so you started seeing as you went back that that group was growing organically and more people. And I think what we've seen, and not just from bourbon, but I think what we've seen is consumers are more discerning and they care more and more about flavor and where their products are coming from. Mm -hmm. And when you look at something like bourbon, it's an agricultural product made of natural ingredients, pretty regulated and it's so full of flavor. It ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah. So I think that people were naturally moving in that direction for food and drink. Yes. And bartenders loved it because there was so much flavor to start with. And it was it's so complex. So I always people laugh. We drink bourbon in our bloody Marys in Kentucky. And the thought of it grosses people out. Hmm. My husband lived here for seven years and he still can't do it. The thought is just disgusting to him. (laughs) But when you think about bourbon, it's caramel and it's vanilla are a lot of the prominent notes. You mix that with tomato and it tastes like barbecue sauce. It's
1: delicious. I see the connection. There's Uh so
2: much flavor. So that's really, I, and then I think more and more brands started getting people out there. I remember in the UK, um, this industry was built through camaraderie. The distillers worked together. So Bill Samuels and Jimmy Russell and Booker Noe and Jim Mileage said, "If we go, if we go as a united front for the entire category in the industry, our slices of the pie all get bigger. Right now, our pie is teeny tiny. Let's mm-hmm. not fight amongst ourselves. Let's go grow together. Mm-hmm. And we and there's that's stayed true in bourbon. Fred Minnick just wrote a fascinating article about that." Like, what could kill the bourbon industry's boom? And that okay. was one of the things he talked about. And we did the same thing. I was, Dan Prisman was the Four Roses ambassador in London. He became a good friend very quickly. Like, and we did things as an as a category. Am I talking too much?
1: No, in the okay. slightest. Okay. I'm absolutely fucking loving it. No, I'm <laughs> I'm seriously just sitting listening to you. And no, keep, keep, So that's, yeah. that
2: has been the bourbon mentality. It's a state of four million people. And the industry's very, very tight-knit. It's very communal. I hope it always stays that way. I think it will. Um, And so, as an industry, we promote each other.
1: It's interesting that you're saying this to a guy who comes from a country of 5 million people, and the Scotch industry is full of camaraderie as well. It's the thing I love the most about the Scotch industry, is everybody's looking out for everybody else.
2: Like Isla, they all have... They go to the same, it's one Christmas party. Uh, right? It's not, you know, there's not seven people at the LaForge Christmas party. They're all together, right? Yeah. I love
1: that. Well, when you're sitting on a on a Hebridean island that's two hours away from the mainland and something breaks, you need to go to your neighbor. Uh, I'm sure if you're sitting in rural Kentucky and something breaks, you're not just going to go down to the industrial components factory and get that piece the very next day. So
2: You need to ask... Um, Denny Potter, that he has a great story about years ago the, the master distillers used to get together a lot and have drinks together and just catch up. And they did a field trip to Jack Daniels once, all the Kentucky distillers. It's an amazing story. I'm not going to tell it because it's okay. not my story, but you need to ask him
1: sometime. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, so as you're seeing the, the rise of bourbon and that kind of organic growth. Um, it really, for me, is a, is a grassroots growth, right? And I think that's maybe what you mean by organic growth, is it's coming from the bottom up rather than the top down. Yep, it's not necessarily the distillers that are leading it. Its, it's groups that are getting more interested in it.
2: It's consumer driven for sure,
1: right? And so, so then, what was your growth within this company? Because clearly, you you came out of the global, ambra- clearly you came out with the global ambassador role. And uh, Easy for me to say. And then you you had another job here before you took charge of maturation.
2: So I, um, in the UK, I, so the first year, I, I worked out of Kentucky, traveled, moved to the UK, was based there for about four years, and the bourbon boom happened in America. And I love, I think it was Jim Rutledge was like, quoted in our local paper, you know, And, you know, people are asking how we didn't know, you know, it's like a looking in a crystal ball, you know, (laughs) we, no one really saw it coming. And when you think about a matured product and then you think about a brand like makers, we've made one thing really well for 65 years. The motto here is don't screw it up. Mm -hmm. So we have had pretty consistent growth if we make too much whiskey, we don't have the luxury of turning it into something else. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was, we better be spot on on predictions and forecasting. And and the industry didn't see it coming. I don't think anyone saw it happening as fast as it did. So the bourbon boom happens, and suddenly the U.S. demand for whiskey is off the charts. And Rob calls. I'll never forget. It was October 2011. And he said, I just I don't think there's a job out there anymore. <laughs> he said I I think it's time to come home Um, the US is exploding and we need we need to we got to take care of home first what did he
1: mean by there's not a job out there anymore basically
2: like we're I think the industry as a whole when you look at bourbon as a whole we, the category doesn't export that much.
1: Mm, I'm with you.
2: So this is this explosion's happening in the U.S. and it's kind of like we got to focus here first. Gotcha. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so he said, "There's not really. We're going to come home. We're gonna we're gonna keep supporting export, but we're gonna kind of really focus on home." So I came back to Kentucky in the beginning of 2012 and. This always sounds like a step down to people, because they went. I went from global ambassador uh-huh. to European to the UK to Kentucky, uh-huh. and I came home and I I did kind of a hybrid role, um, and really learned the commercial business here at home. And Kentucky is the weirdest market because it's so mature when you talk about bourbon, and it's so saturated when you talk about bourbon. Mm-hmm. And I I did that job and I still traveled some, but I really focused in on what was happening here with the brand and at the distillery. Uh, the maturation and innovation job came from just nagging the hell out of Rob. Um, I wanted to make whiskey; that was the dream. There you go. And then I learned what a distiller did, and I don't. I did. I didn't want to make whiskey. It seemed really boring to me. I wanted to be the person that figured out what the liquid was going to be and then how you got it to the
1: bottle. So you continue to be smart with the jobs that you take on. Very well done.
2: So um, we wear a lot of different hats here. I always tease Rob and Bill. They still think we're eight people in a loft. Like we still, (laughs) even here today, you're sitting here. It's chaos, right? It still feels like a startup in some ways. Uh
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, well you're you're in this kind of office that you travel in and out of. The distillery shut down for, you know, the month of August. It's there's a lot of moving parts here. We see Danny kind of in the corridor earlier. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, um yeah, that's me. So, I I do a few different things, but it's it's a wonderful place to work. It's a wonderful industry. It's a wonderful brand.
1: I so, love it. So, speak to the current job. Speak to a, because, A, I want to get an oversight of what it is you're doing. What are you in charge of? And then, B, I want to nerd out with you on the yeast and the wood and what you're seeing with different staves. Um, also the rotation in the warehouse was a question that we got. Uh, somebody was like, do they really do that? We really, really um, do that. And you really have limestone warehousing?
2: We have a cellar, uh, which you and I are going to go look at in a few minutes. Awesome. Um, so I oversee innovation and specifically uh, maturation. So my world, ISC, um, independent state company, their research center is 15 minutes down the road. I probably spend as much time there as I do here. Oh
1: wow. Um, they're a contract for you. They're, they are the they're largest barrel.
2: No, they're the largest barrel manufacturer in the world. So the entire bourbon industry Mainly uses them. Uh, Brown Foreman obviously is their own cooperage, and then there's some new people on the on the on the game. Spacey, there's uh-huh. a few others. Saw that. Um, but yeah, we've been with them since 1954. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so um, I my job in a nutshell, and it sounds so basic, uh, but it it's not. Is really exploring where flavor comes from in whiskey
1: that's which for us and listeners of the podcast is fascinating absolutely fascinating and exactly what we want to know more about too
2: so i think when you look at okay bill samuels senior started this brand from scratch in 1954 even though he had inherited a commercially successful 100 year old brand Mm -hmm. from his father imagine having the balls to go (laughs) i'm gonna You've been handed a gulp. Yeah, I'm not interested. I'm going to go do something different. Um, and he he took, you know, he bought this distillery here in Happy Hollow, Kentucky. And he had, he inherited some of the equipment. He set up some own processes. But you look at the industry in the 1950s. And this was pre, you know, um, 1964 ruling on, on, with the Johnson movement of, like, here are the rules of bourbon and here are the regulations. So back then it was just people the entry proof people went in the barrel at 110 and and people did rotate barrels and and the barrels were seasoned outside and there were all these things that were just what you did and everything he knew about making whiskey he learned from the industry and he applied to the craft here because the science really wasn't there yet Mm -hmm. now we've got the science we do a lot of gas and liquid chromatography in our lab to really understand. We always joke it's like the CSI of bourbon, right? Like (laughs) to really understand where compounds are created and where flavor is coming from. So actually what we're doing a lot of now is we're doing the science to understand why these things matter Mm -hmm. and why it makes things taste the way they do. So for example, I've been working on an entry proofs. We've been looking at entry proof. We go in at 110. Okay. Right. Industry standard now, you can go in up to 125. Why would you do one or the other? Well, barrels are really expensive. We're only allowed to use them once. It's prime real estate. The more alcohol you can get in that barrel, the more whiskey you're going to be able to make. Sure. It's just math, right? Well, we've always gone in at 110. We're not going to change that. So, what's the science of that? Would it make a difference? So, what we've actually learned is there are certain compounds from the wood that are more soluble in alcohol versus water. So one of the biggest questions I always get is when are you going to make an older maker's mark? Uh-huh. Trust me, we're fucking trying. We just can't. Because and and we never knew why we couldn't. We know now. We understand the science now. Okay? One of the great things about Water is wood sugars are more soluble in water. Delicious, yummy. We love what comes out of mm-hmm. cellulose and lignin. Like, we want that. Great. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, so are the tannins.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: it's the good with the bad. So t- because tannins are more soluble in water than alcohol, the tannins really infiltrate our whiskey. We're using weeded bourbon. So suddenly you've got this tannin influence. Here's another thing we don't do here. We don't chill filter. Mm-hmm. Chill filtering can remove a lot of the fatty acid esters and some of those things that age gives a lot to. We don't have any way to get that out, so we find that after about seven and a half to eight years, there's so the tannin starts to take over, the carbon starts to infiltrate. It it makes a whiskey we just don't. It doesn't hit a taste vision. Yeah. Does that mean you might like it? Absolutely. We all have different palates and preferences, but we never understood the science of it. So now a lot of what I do is, is where does flavor come from? How much does yeast strain matter? How much does cooking
3: mm-hmm.
2: matter? How much does um, the fact that we mill to more of a coarse grist versus a flour, what's the impact of that? Where, you know, climates, we talk about rotation. We try to give every barrel the same life cycle um, because we want consistency. And heat is going to derive certain compounds in the wood versus cold derives certain compounds in the wood. So mm-hmm. it, it's just we're starting to kind of break it down. And what's funny is the more we learn, the more we realize how little we know.
1: <laughs> it's funny that you end up in that spot because it speaks to what we call tradition, I think, was doing what you're familiar <laughs> with, doing what you know works. That's what became tradition. And the thing that we keep hearing on the podcast is um, today's innovation is tomorrow's tradition. And so, as you're out, it's quite poignant. That that was Dave Broom. I will give credit (laughs) where credit is due. I love Dave Broom so much. He was the last episode. I'm a
2: little bit of a fangirl. Yeah. Oh
1: please go listen to the episode because I was a total fanboy. Oh, I
2: love him. <laughs> I did Debbie set in
1: London and he taught the Scotch and
2: Irish and I was just fascinated. He's anyway, brilliant.
1: Continue. And so he was kind of bringing it out of Japan where you hear things in Japan about, oh, they're doing this and they're doing that based on their research and based on science. And people say, oh, really? You're doing it that way? And he said, yeah, today's innovation is tomorrow's tradition. So So as you're finding yourself innovating, What is something that you're most excited about that you're in charge of at Maker's Mark with regards to innovation that you're allowed to talk about?
2: Um, I think you and I were just talking about this as we drove up to the Mm -hmm. lake. Um, It is a manufacturing facility, but we're an agricultural product. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing the flavors nature provides to you? And how little we understand about the potential of that. Mm-hmm. So I told you one of the things we're doing right now. We've we've partnered with the University of Kentucky and built, uh, not built, grown. Mm-hmm. You could tell I don't personally <laughs> grow or farm. I'm reading about soil right now. Oh, which, fantastic! Yeah. Um, and we've partnered with them and, and grown. We have an experimental wheat farm. What's interesting about the grain industry versus the forestry industry here in the U S they've almost gone in opposite directions. So as grains have become more commodity and, and, you know, for good reason, you know, trying to feed the world, like hunger, right. And how do you get more efficient and, and higher yields? And, and the question we've started kind of asking is have you lost flavor along the way? And so the University of Kentucky is growing experimental wheat here to really start kind of understanding what grows naturally here, what varieties, Um, and looking more modern versus heirloom. Like heirlooms died for a reason. People have moved away from them. So how can you kind of look at farming practices and and where flavor comes from in grain And because everything's become so commodity yield-based. And the thing is we don't really – know where flavor comes from in grain mm-hmm. you ask people and they're like oh, is it the end of is no, no." like how you know where it is so we're we're looking at that a little bit um and then with wood holy cow um the complexities of oak and where flavor lives in oak and and the growing conditions versus tree genetics versus uh the soil and where you know and i the provenance of that. Um, and then how you season it or dry it and how you cook it and, and how the environment you're giving it to. So what I love is it's just flavor and taste exploration. And it's just asking questions and talking to really smart people all day. (laughs) Right. And then take, you know, and then, and seeing kind of trying to understand this 65 year old brand and whiskey, that's been made one way for so long and why does it taste the way it does and what, what makes it so special because I I love this whiskey and I, I love what we do here at this distillery. Do
1: you ever get any of the old timers kind of looking down their nose at you because you're you're talking about we need to know more about soil, we need to know more about forests, we need to know more about old growth and heirloom grains. and are there any old timers who are kind of like get out of your head? They don't talk to me. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um,
2: No, well, and it is very, um, it really is focused on what, where is flavor contributing, right? Where, how, and then how do things interact? So that whiskey, the volatiles of the whiskey and then the compounds of the wood and, and what is actually happening and how much does oxidation matter and how much does, you know, all those things, right? Um, no, I think I think we're all asking these questions to understand more. I think probably I don't know. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, Bill Bill always thinks I'm ridiculous, but this is you know. Rob is very much like the more you know, like let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Where where keep pushing yeah. that envelope? Yeah.
1: So I have I have three distinct areas that I want to ask you about and nerd out about. Number one, yeast. You know, what are you seeing with yeast? If you're able to tell us the yeast, I know you've got proprietary yeast here. We have a, we propagate
2: on site. Yep.
1: Um, And then I want to just ask you a simple question about red winter wheat. Um, Just straight up, like, why? How did that come to be? It was local. Uh, Brilliant. (laughs) It's it's
2: what grew here. Um, Okay. It's soft red winter wheat, um, hard Hard wheats typically grow more in the Midwest. And then white, hard whites are typically Pacific Northwest where you used to be, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, You get a lot of hard white. Uh, So different baking community uses different types of strains of wheat. So it's hard versus soft is protein levels Ah. um, and then glucose levels. And then winter versus spring is the seasons and how you grow. Um, So soft red was just, it was what grew here. And, and my favorite Dave Broom quote, which I use all the time. <laughs> yeah, I love that we're doing this. Um, he always says whiskey's a product of its economy and its environment. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at bourbon, you know, people, we get this a lot now. Like I just bought my husband a t-shirt that's like, if it ain't Kentucky, it ain't bourbon. You know, I don't believe that. <laughs> but I think when you look at bourbon, of course it was created here of course it started here and it wasn't like people to your point, the Japanese are so fascinating because it's been very purposeful. Right. Mm-hmm. The rest of us, it was just like, this is what we had and we wanted to drink. So we just fucking made it like, right. You know what I mean? Like Get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> it's, But I think it's so, but that's true. So soft red winter wheat, um, there was Oak, right. A lot of our barrels, the trees are still coming from Eastern Kentucky. Um, hmm. corn, grew here Mm -hmm. right it it was just what was it was it was here
1: yeah (laughs) just in talking about grains and i'm going to show my scotch bias here and you might kick me out your office now um when i when i do some tastings obviously with single cast nation we've bottled some mgp stuff we'll bottle some wild turkey stuff great juice and we put the full name right front and center on it and I'll lead off with some of that. We've, we've really been championing American light whiskey, American grain whiskey. We think it's an amazing product. Um, but we go from kind of corn and abundant corn in the mash bill, and then we pivot to the scotchies that we've got, that we've been bottling. And in growing up drinking scotch and in sharing scotch and in representing scotch, I never quite understood the heavy lifting that malted barley was doing until you show corn as a distillate. Corn does what it does fantastically well. But I don't think it's doing the heavy lifting that barley's doing. I think barley's got complexity and layers and development of flavors. So I put it to you, Jane Bowie, this day, given what you know about grain, given how deep of a dive you do into grain, why am I wrong about corn? What, What should I know about corn that would have me rethinking my relationship with corn?
2: I think, well, I also think it's to your point where you grew up and what you your palate's used to. I think corn, predominantly sweet. It gives you good sugar. Mm-hmm. There's good yield. It does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of um, alcohol. I think flavor-wise, it's like anything, though. You know, like you, you taste. I love, um, so our, our wheat actually grows. In this county, we have a single family that grows all of our wheat right here. Fantastic. They have a cousin, the Bardstown Farmer's Market. I'll give you an example. The Bardstown Farmer's Market is a true farmer's market. No one's walking (laughs) around to be seen at this farmer's market. It's some people pull up and there's produce in the back of their truck and you buy it and you go home. (laughs) Nice. Um, And they have a cousin who grows this white peaches and cream corn. It is, this corn is so flavorful in the summer. I don't even cook it. I cut it raw off off the husk straight onto salads and my daughter can't eat enough of it. Nice. And it's got this sweetness and this um I love garden tomatoes cuz I always this sounds so cheesy. You can taste the
1: sunshine. Uh, uh, but I agree 100%. I say it all the time. <laughs>
2: um so this corn, the, the amount of flavor packed into this corn. Corn is an amazing ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got this sweetness and it's got this um, crispness that I think you get in bourbon and it sets a foundation for how it's going to interact with that virgin oak mm. and what it's going to do. I would also say with barley, and I love, I love scotch. Um, I didn't always love scotch. The first time I tasted <laughs> scotch was actually at Laphroaig and that's a really embarrassing story, <laughs> but um, not where you start with scotch, obviously, uh, but Um, I think barley is an amazing ingredient, but then I think malting has so
1: much to do with the impact, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely.
2: And and malting's creating a lot of those characteristics you think of, that Mm -hmm. actual malting process. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, corn, I I think maybe gets agreed a bad rap that it's maybe a little more or it's less complex. Mm -hmm. But I think that's why we have mash bills. Right. Uh, yeah. Nice. We bring in small grains. We bring in, you know, we use 14 percent malted barley here. Did you know that?
1: I only because uh, of the Internet. But yes,
2: that is a really 14 high, is good, yeah. you know, typically people use five to 10 yeah. percent just for the enzymes during cooking. Yeah. He actually wanted some flavor from it. It wasn't mm-hmm. just about enzymatic activity.
1: Yes. Yes. So you're 70, 16, 14. We are. Look at me doing my research. Let regular listeners know we do no research on this podcast. <laughs> but I'm here talking American whiskey without Joshua, and so I needed to fight my own corner. So. <laughs> uh, but no, I was I was excited to see, and, and hence I had the question about the red winter wheat, to see 16% of that going into the mash bill, and then the 14% of the malted barley going in.
2: Yeah, and in bourbon, we typically think of, uh, we consider like 70-30, so we're... Mm-hmm corn and then our small grain is 30% of our mash bill which is fairly impactful right um so i think you know but that's one of the things too like how much does your mash bill matter by the time you cook it ferment it distill it put it in virgin oak mm-hmm. age it like how you know it's funny some people some distillers are very adamant i'm going to keep the mash bill a secret and this is mm-hmm. This is, you know, it's, and then others are kind of like, nah, I don't know how much percentages. The truth is, n- no one knows, mm-hmm. which is exciting, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, back to how we did it before and where the flavors worked and how it yep. interacted with the oak well. Yeah. Um, we were talking in the stillhouse about the value of your local water and the amount of flavor that comes out from the f- fermenting. Can we pivot back a little bit to talk about yeast and fermenting and the proprietary yeast that you have on site?
2: Yeah, so Bill Samuel Sr. brought a yeast strain with him to this distillery, Um, and we have been propagating this yeast on site since we laid down the first barrel in February of 1954. Um, Our yeast strain, those of you who are into yeast, um, we make jug yeast. So it's kind of like making a beer. Um, you use hops. We use malted barley. It's a two-day process where you go from jug to what we call day yeast, and there's steps in between. Um, basically, yeast has two main purposes in its life, right? It likes to reproduce and eat sugar. <laughs> yep. Like ever, my husband's always like, in my next life, I hope I come back as a yeast strain. <laughs> we should all be so lucky, <laughs> right? So, um, we. We propagate this yeast, so we pull out of the jug and we we feed it to reproduce it, to get more and more yeast cells to introduce into the mash for fermentation. So our, our jug yeast, um, it tastes, it drinks like a Hefeweizen. Holy moly. It's delicious. So it's got, if you think about a Hefeweizen and, and what that style of beer with all those fruit characteristics, there's a slight clove note, um, very subtle, but... That's what it tastes like. And you can follow that through the process and you can really see the impact of it. And I think people like four roses are a great example. You know, they have those five different yeast strains and and they people kind of become cultish on I like like I, I like OESK. That's uh, my, yeah, that's absolutely. My, that's my personal favorite recipe there, right? Mm-hmm. So I think um yeast is such a a big flavor influencer. Cause when you look at the distillery, you and I are talking about this, people always talk about distilling and distilling is amazing, but distilling only can highlight what you've already created. It doesn't create flavor. The mm-hmm. still doesn't create flavor. Mm-hmm. It distills flavor. Mm-hmm. So really fermentation is where it's all created at that part. Right? So it's how you're preparing. It's the, it's the mash bill you're using. We use a roller mill. So we make a coarser grist. The philosophy is a lot of the bitterness and the bite is going to live in the husk. So we don't want to completely destroy those grains because the goal of Makers was to be bitter free and to be the soft flavored bourbon that you could hold on your tongue. That was his taste vision. Gotcha. So we use a roller mill instead of a hammer mill. Um, It's not as efficient, but we have a coarser grind. You know, cooking, we're doing atmospheric cook versus a pressure cook. There's no, here's what I would say about whiskey making. There's no right or wrong. It's just. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we do a three day fermentation. You know, everyone typically there's some of the new guys are not using sour mash. They're using sweet mash. Uh, we all use sour mash for consistency. Mm. Um, our lake water, you mentioned the lake. Um, it's actually wonderfully gross. Um, Water comes directly from our own lake on site to the cooker. We strain out like the fish and stuff, but it's straight in there. There's no process at all. Okay. Um. And the reason there's a lot of mystique around why Kentucky water—it's hard water. The entire state sits on limestone. Our, if I we had pulled rocks and I should have done this, you can actually see fossils where Kentucky used to sit was on the equator, hmm. and so millions of years of coral and fish and everything compounding and it's actually our lake the way i would describe it our environment it's like swiss cheese right so the water's coming up through all this rock and all this shale and all all of this and it's mineral rich it's calcium magnesium it's got a great ph level it's slightly alkaline Mm -hmm. okay if you know about the science of fermentation Mm -hmm. yeast doesn't really like acidity the bacteria likes it even less. Okay. Okay. So suddenly you're creating, you have this water that's slightly alkaline, almost pH neutral. You're creating this environment where the yeast thrives.
1: Makes it's brilliant like, sense.
2: It's just it's like, okay, for the <laughs> yeast, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> I can't say that. I all. love that. <laughs> so, so that's why Kentucky Water, um, and we have been so... Obsessed with the water and the source, and 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 you know, with whiskey making, you talk decades and centuries. Uh, we just procured a second lake, and we actually we have eleven hundred acres here. We own our entire watershed. What that means is every drop of water that ends up in our lake, that ends up in our cooker for fermentation, we own the
1: land that water touches.
2: Um, so we're we're a little bit. Serious. We're kind of control freaks that makers.
1: <laughs> I didn't know if I was able to say that out loud. No, but yeah, there's, true. A, there's a little bit of OCD going on at the distillery where we control this and we control that. And oh, we're, we're in charge ob- of this. We're
2: obsessed with it. I mean, we still print all of our own labels on site because we don't trust anyone to do it right.
1: <laughs> Having relied on a number of contractors for labels, that's very smart. <laughs> yeah,
2: we sell <stole laughs> all of our labels. We print and cut all of them on site.
1: <laughs> so, so as you're moving through these flavors, how would you describe... Uh, I would call it the new make spirit. Would, would you say new make spirit? Would you say white dog? White would dog. You, you would say white dog. Okay. We're not,
2: we're, we're not as elegant as you.
1: I didn't know if yeah. <laughs> white dog. If I was allowed to say High that, wine. So. Yeah. Um, so how would you describe that flavor as that runs from the still? Because you then are in charge of what that's then doing in the cask. So what do you inherit from Denny, say? Oh, Danny, I'm kidding.
2: Um, <laughs> uh, I love tasting distilleries, new or white dog. I, I think it tells you so much about what Agreed. a distillery and a brand's about. Absolutely. And it really is the building blocks for what the barrel's going to do. So our new make, um, we double distill. Our first distillation, um, is through a bourbon column still. It's pretty small considering the size of our operation. Um, 36 inch diameter, hundred percent copper, 15 stripping plates. Our rectifying section is one plate. So we actually get some of the heavier congeners coming over. Our low wine is quite oily. It's quite viscous. Um, for me personally, I get a lot of fruit characteristics. We do a flash uh, double distillation in a doubler, 100%. Doubler is a fancy way to say continuous running pot still, um, which sounds like an oxymoron, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 100% copper, it's flash. It's second. And, and I think of it, some people say, oh, it cleans up the whiskey. I just think it focuses the whiskey. Um, so the low wine, it's quite fatty. It's all over the place. High wines, a little more um, directed. A lot of the yeast comes through. It's quite bready, actually. Mm. You do get the grains. Um, but for me, the overwhelming characteristic is it's it's very yeasty and bready, which I love.
3: Okay.
2: Um, we come off at 130. As I said, our injury proof is 110. Very low. Um so the the new make is really um, I'm not going to go into like the GC readout of the new make, but actually our our distillate has a lot of vanillin to start with. Huh. So vanilla is something we love at Maker's Mark. In fact, we have independent stave air dry our wood. We don't do pre dryer at all. And and I don't know how geeky you want to get on. Very it. Keep okay. Going. So the science of the oak. Um, how a barrel is made and this is what i i love when you think about these trees right typically they're on average 80 90 years old right we're Mm -hmm. actually we have we're doing oak research on site and it's a project i sit in these meetings and i won't be alive to see the results of this project there's something Uh there's something incredible about that right
1: Uh uh-huh doesn't freak you out too much Um, is a little bit the back of your mind freaking out a little
2: bit I, i think it's I love this industry's not only been good to me personally, it's been good to our state and my family's been in Kentucky a million years. Uh-huh. So I, I love thinking about what we're doing for the future of the industry. Yeah. No, that's sweet. Absolutely sweet. So. Um, but yeah, so we're doing this Oak research product that none of us are in the room. We're going to live long enough to see because you know, these trees are going to be probably 80, 90, a hundred years old. And so you cut a tree down and you have about sixty to sixty five percent moisture in the tree. To build a barrel, you need the moisture to be at about twelve to fourteen percent. Okay. So how do you pull that moisture out? Mm-hmm. Which, finally, enough twelve to fourteen percent is also what we look for typically moisture rate right, in corn and wheat.
1: Uh huh.
2: Little fun fact for you. Um, <laughs> You're
1: arcing the people, James. <laughs>
2: um. So how do you get that moisture level down? So traditionally, you would have just Sat it outside, mm-hmm. right? Think about firewood. Scots seem like firewood burning people. We are. We
1: love our firewood.
2: Yeah. So you can't cut a tree down and then just go burn that wood. It doesn't work that way. So what we do at Makers, they have technology now where they actually can put the wood in a dryer and slowly pull the moisture down to about 18 to 22%. And then from there you go to the kiln. And then from the kiln, you go make a barrel. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is really boring.
1: No, this is fantastic. Okay. Keep
2: going. So, what we do is we don't do a dryer at all. They air dry all of our wood for about a year to get from that 60, 65% to that 18 to 22%. So, they have six acres of land down the road of nothing but Maker's Mark wood sitting outside rotting. It's the number one thing I'm most proud of. This is how much maturation's my life. Um, you go, it's actually really gross. There's like mushrooms growing on and it looks black. But as you walk through, you get the smell. If the wind's blowing, it smells like cotton candy and marshmallows. Oh,
3: wow. Because
2: what happens is it starts leaching out the tannins and it actually starts lignin degradation, which okay. when you okay. degradate lignin, it creates vanillin. Mm-hmm. We love that. So from there we go to the kiln and then they build the barrel so our distillate actually has a decent amount of vanillin in it already and then our barrel we're really focusing on getting the tannins out of the way as much as we can you do want them for balance and mouth you know structure and yeah. and you know the tactile nature and and you you need them we just don't want an abundance mm-hmm. so um and then from there we're going in at 110 and we're Starting in the top half of a warehouse. All of our barrels begin their life in the top half of a warehouse. Gotcha. And then we stay for three Kentucky summers. This week, last week, what's today? August 9th, Seventh,
1: eighth, something. 9th, something like
2: that. August 1st, every year, we begin rotation. So our team goes out, three Kentucky summers. You can actually, when I take you in the lab, we've got about 50 cases of rotating samples that the panel has to sign off on. Wow. We're looking for a flavor maturity. And an extraction rate, and once the lab, everyone taste panel signs off, those barrels are in lots, and they get rotated from the top of the warehouse to the bottom of the warehouse. Okay. So the bottom of the warehouse, those barrels, when they're ready, go get bottled. Okay. Bottom opens up. Top comes down. New stuff goes up. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely, yeah. What kind of numbers are we talking about? How many barrels are living together, say, in the top and then moving to the bottom? So
2: we produce Maker's Mark still. We're so weird. So most people make it big, bottle it small. We make it small and bottle it big. So we produce it about 25 barrels at a time. That's our production batch size. That's kind of insane. Uh So those are the lot numbers that live together as far as, so we have 25 barrels and then we go into cistern. So what we do is we have X amount of fermenters into one cistern tank. So that cistern tank is one lot of entry, but we can actually, our traceability, we can go all the way back to those 25 barrels. And then from there we can even go back. We keep our grains on file for 90 days. So we can actually, the traceability, we can go to farms. We've started to look at traceability through four. Like, we have a ton of traceability. Wow. So those lots get moved um, in cistern lots and then have the fermenting lots within that, if that makes sense. Okay. That might not make sense. Yeah. And then you have various warehouses. Like you're not going to put all your eggs in one basket. Uh So you're filling different where you're rotating where you're filling warehouses. And we have three different aging locations. Okay. So we have warehouses here on this campus. We own land in town where the majority of our warehouses are. And then we still have two uh, warehouses over at the old T.W. Samuels Distillery at Deetsville, Kentucky.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. And then where does the line... Scale, no limestone. Limestone cellar. Yeah. Where, where does that fit into that things? is forty
2: six only. Okay. Um so makers forty six, when we started that product, it was Bill's retirement. Sorry, Bill's oh, ret- okay. yeah, it's me. <laughs> Bill's retirement. Uh, I'm gonna retire, you know, forty years of one thing. <laughs> if you let me like wow. truly run this distillery, it'd be we'd probably be out of business pretty soon. But, <laughs> um, so He, 40 years, mom and dad created makers in 1953, 1954. A lot of people don't realize this truly was co-founded. He, everything in the bottle was him. Everything outside the bottle was her. So when you look at the grounds, when you look at the packaging, when you look at the philosophy of who the brand, all of that was Margie Samuels. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Progressive, right? Yeah. (laughs) In the
1: 1950s. Gosh. I wonder if she ever imagined it becoming what it's become. She
2: did not, she passed away uh, young and he really didn't live long enough to see what the brand has become.
1: Unbelievable.
2: Um, So Bill carried the torch for mom and dad. And when he came in, his dad, uh, mom made dad hire him, right? (laughs) He was a failed rocket scientist, went to law school at Vanderbilt University, spent a lot of time with the Maltlers at Jack Daniels and decided he wanted to get in the industry and dad didn't want to give him a job. This was a hobby. I mean, Fort St- they started this distillery and laid down the first barrel in 1954. They didn't turn a profit until 1967.
1: Can yeah. you imagine? Yeah. That's serious dedication to what you're doing. It's
2: serious faith and dedication. Then I always joke, like, how are you living? And Bill says, you know, Rob always says, like, they went from, like, steak on China to, like, hot dogs on paper plates. Like, <laughs> all the money was tied up here. So... Um, Bill, mom made dad give him a job, and so the job was go find customers. That was the job description go find customers. We're not going to market because it's rude. You don't invade people's airspace.
1: Oh, wow! And
2: That's you're not, wonderful, you're not allowed to touch the whiskey. Oh, okay, so he took that so to heart for 40 years. He didn't touch the whiskey, and the
1: whiskey side, he was drinking the product yes he wasn't he didn't have to be tea total he, for didn't, 40 he years. didn't
2: interfere with the quality or integrity of the whiskey i'm with you so when he got ready to think about retiring um he thought this is what are they going to say about me i didn't screw up the whiskey like is that the legacy we're like you did a little more than that because he's you know he's one of the great i think original advocates of this industry but um So he, 46 was really just, it was a swan song. It was a, I'm going to go tinker and I'm going to go do something. And it didn't have to ever be anything, but I I just want to make my own whiskey. Okay. And so the goal of 46 wasn't, I'm going to go reinvent the wheel. The goal was he wanted to create a maker's mark for his palate.
1: Fantastic opportunity.
2: So we did aging and wood experiments for about two years we did about 125 experiments and the goal was he wanted a bigger bolder expression of maker's mark okay that was that was the goal i mean it was you know in a nutshell he had a list of nine words he spent six months articulating and (laughs) um i have i have that framed in my office actually up the hill but um Forty six, the science of forty six. It's a. It's.
1: Are you familiar with Maker's forty six? A, a little bit, a little bit. It's, it's one of my favorites of the of the makers. Really, why? Um, texture, um, and again, I've I got more presence from it. To hear it being described as bigger, or bolder makes perfect sense. That's exactly what my palate goes looking for. So,
2: ah, uh. <laughs> but thank goodness we make two things now, um, just for you. So. <laughs> No, it so the, that was the goal, and and it was not really about process. It was about taste. And so one of the things he said is we're not going to box ourselves in. We're going to go figure out how to make this, and it has to be repeatable. And that's one of the things that's, that's really interesting about this. Our philosophy is repeatability. Like we love consistency, and we love being able to control things, as you said. So um, we stuck with virgin oak. Okay. Even though it's a finished whiskey, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding because so many of the the terms we use in whiskey, there's no definition. Mm -hmm. Like people go, small batch. What does that mean? Yes. There's actually no definition. Yep,
1: yep. So so when you say virgin, is that the same as New Oak? It's the same as New Oak. Okay. Yeah. Sorry.
2: No, no, no. Virgin yeah, virgin new oak, virgin oak. Um so You know, and traditionally people think of finishing. Scotch really defined finishing to me. I always think of Mm Glenmorangie in the 90s and like, you know, Sherry Butts and bringing in. And and so he said, that is great, but that's not what this is. We're going to look at virgin oak and we're going to look at being able to get repeatability where if I'm buying barrels from somewhere else with an outside influence, there's no consistency with that, right? So... We did these experiments and what he found is if you take fully matured maker's mark um, and we, our age statement is fully matured. Uh-huh. What does that mean? So I, I always think of, of whiskey it's maturity instead of age. Age does not tell you this whole story of some, someone or something
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's life cycle. It's maturity when it hits that sweet spot. So we dump it out of the barrel. We put in 10 pieces of virgin, French white oak, okay, okay, that's been seared using infrared heat instead of charring or fire toasting. Okay, because uh, because of how it's going to actually caramelize the wood. Okay, so what it does is this heat processes it, heat process it it's infrared heat that's actually done. It looks like a fan, like a really industrial pizza oven, is what it okay. looks like. And it caramelizes the wood sugars on the outside and it locks the tannic acid on the inside. Ah. So you put the staves in the middle of the barrel with the fully matured Maker's cask and it it eats the sugar from the outside of the wood without pulling the tannins if, here's the big thing we uh-huh. learned, if the whiskey temperature is below 50 degrees Fahrenheit how the hell they figured this out as quickly as they did is mind-boggling to me wow so for six years we just made it in the winter uh-huh <laughs> and what i love about us we launched this product in 2010 and we just didn't tell anyone about it you would come to a tour here and and we, we, it was like 45 minutes of like waxing poetic about makers. And then we're like, oh, and then there's 46.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, nervous. <laughs>
2: like, oh, and then there's this thing Build it. But what happened was the whiskey was so good and people, it, it just, talk about grassroots and or organic growth, it just started growing. Ah. And we got to a point where it was becoming burdensome to make in the winter. Right. You're trying to lay down a year's worth of supply in about four months. Sure. It was difficult to make. It was labor intensive. We used the French oak one time. Nothing about this product made sense. Mm -hmm. And so Rob had the idea. Let's try to make it year round. Um, We're sitting on this limestone instead of building a refrigerated warehouse. Let's blow up a hill and build a cellar where we can actually make this product in a cool environment year round. So
1: that's what we did. As simple as that.
2: It's as simple as that. <laughs> I've, after I have a video
1: of us blowing up the hill on my phone, it's amazing. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Bill is a nervous wreck. I can imagine blowing up a bloody hill. Yeah. Um, so Makers, Makers 46, there's also the Cast Strength Offering. Yes. Can you speak just quickly to the Cast Strength Offering? I, purest form of Makers Mark, I freaking
2: love Cast Strength Whiskey, because I uh-huh. always think like, for me... I love distilleries. I love seeing how whiskey's made and, and someone's point of view and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think how the whiskey is when it comes straight out of the barrel uh-huh. is the test of what a distillery, it tells you everything you need to know about
1: that distillery. Yep. Right? Absolutely. It, that's exactly what we do.
2: Um, so I love our cast strength always sits right around 108 to 114 because of rotation.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Right. Proof gets stronger at the top of the warehouse. It gets weaker at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for a cast strength to be around that 110 mark, or 55% uh-huh. ABV for our British listeners. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I love it. And it, you get, for me, flavor-wise, you get all that the barrel had to offer. There's something about the cutting that you lose some of the the, the barrel characteristics to
1: me. Yes.
2: I... Um, so I love our cask strength. So Rob actually, um, he he wanted to showcase the whiskey in its purest form. So that was one of the first things he did when Bill retired is he brought out a maker's cask strength.
1: And it's generally available. It's not just a, a special, an annual, no, a local?
2: We, no, it's generally, I mean, very, very small volume, mm-hmm. but it's generally I
1: live in Kentucky, so everything's kind of available. (laughs) We see it all over the place. But
2: um, yeah, it's generally available. We've been doing it since 2014.
1: Okay. And And then when you're doing the cast strength on it, you're only allowing the barrels to almost come to a batch strength.
2: It's still batch.
1: You're not then diluting it to a consistent proof for every cast strength release that goes out.
2: No, 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 no. It is what it is. So, but it's batch. It's not a single barrel cast. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: So it's still our same batch size. It still has stayed the taste profile. Um, We're just not adding
1: water. That was a brilliant conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed with the wonderful Jane Bowie at Maker's Mark. And from where we just take the current pause, we're going to pivot over to The Maker's Mark Private Select. Mm. But before we give the floor back to Jane to discuss a program that she was really instrumental in developing and building, you, sir, have got a fair few Private Select bottles in your hoosie. How did this come to pass? Where are you getting them? (laughs) And why have you not poured any for me in any of my visits? I think
0: you know damn well why you haven't gotten any. <laughs> uh, Too much damn choice. You sanctimonious prick, you. Um, <laughs> so I, I've got about 12 of these uh, Maker's Private Select bottlings. Okay. And the reason why I have so many is a lot of my better accounts, you know, the, be- the better shops that I, that I work with, have all joined in on this program and have created their own Maker's Mark Private Select pick. And the first one that I got, I think it was the first one that I got, was from Gene at Warehouse. And, and he before he poured it for me, he prefaced it with saying, this was the first time where I've done a barrel pick that wasn't actually a pick. Mm-hmm. I had to make this whiskey. And I was given an option of five staves, like five different types of woods to deal with to finish this whiskey. And to be honest, I didn't know if it would turn out good. I, I was yep. given an exploit, Like he showed me his booklet. Like anybody who gets the opportunity to do a private select pick, um, which before... Listeners and Single Cast Nation members ask us if we are. I doubt that we will ever have the opportunity to do that. Unless Maker's Mark wants to allow us to use our own bottle and label. But that's another story. But anyway, so he you know, showed me this booklet that talked about the staves that you could use and what potential flavors you'll get from the staves and things like that. And so he got to make his whiskey not knowing if in the end it would be a whiskey that he would be proud of. Mm. And fact of the matter was, he was very proud of it because it ended up being a beautiful, beautiful whiskey. And so I I had to buy one of his. And and then there's a few shops in Massachusetts that I had to buy from, like Julio's and Four Seasons. And I think I have one from Gordon's. And, <laughs> and so... And so part of the reason, part of the reason why you haven't tasted any of these is, is, you know, these shop owners pour them for me. I fall in love because it's, you know, delicious bourbon and I leave with a bottle. But they're so beautiful when I get them home with the, with the red wax and, you know, on the back you get to see the staves that they use. I think I only have one open and I just haven't opened up the other ones. Um, I don't know if the, just the listeners pretty. and
1: I are buying this, Joshua. I don't know if the listeners and I are on board. What do we think, listeners? <laughs> this
0: seems. This I seems think like he's some telling the sauce.
1: truth. I <laughs> think
0: he's. I think he's telling the truth. <laughs> Shut up, you Scotsman! <laughs> yeah, I
1: think just uh... you know, if there's one thing we know, mm. American bourbon
0: is for drinking. Oh, oh, oh. You naughty <laughs> naughty naughty boy. It's bourbon. And bourbon is made in America.
1: In the country of America, <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> um here oh. uh, so quick question then Wh- yeah. when you're tasting these with store owners who are mm-hmm. are doing uh the 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 private select picks. Mhm. What are you finding flavor wise as you're tasting from store to store to store? Are you finding there's a breadth of flavors? Are you finding they're picking kind of a, a common theme of flavors? What's your experience there?
0: I find the flavors really run the gamut because you know my understanding is and I, and I have to re- <laughs> I'm trying to remember remember what Jane was saying. And what the shop owner said, you've got five different staves you could choose from, and mm-hmm. you could do nine of them, I think it is, or uh, ten of them. I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you
1: the answer. I'm gonna leave that question hanging, and the listeners can wait for Jane giving the answer.
0: Yeah, because it's mentioned, and for some reason yeah. that number, that number is eluding me. But you know these these shop owners, if they really wanted to, they can say, I want all of them to be French oak staves. I mm-hmm. want all of them to be this like um, this cocoa whatever stave, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I want it to be one of these. And so, if you have five different staves and you can do multiples of these staves, you could really switch it up. And mm-hmm. so, and so, this is where I, 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 I tip my hat to the good Jane Bowie because oh, she's. Uh, Is it Bowie or Bowie? Bowie. You've been saying Bowie. That's incorrect the whole time. It's Bowie, like David. But why are you saying
1: Bowie? Because that's a terrible, terrible mistake that's been made all the way through this episode.
0: You're a terrible person. That's horrible. Wow. Sorry, Jane. Jane, I apologize (laughs) for this foreigner Uh, who's infiltrated our land, drinking all of our American bourbon. And (laughs) uh, I'm pronouncing your name wrong.
1: Her husband, who's the boy, is English. (laughs) I'm fucking this up in my homeland as much as I'm fucking this up in another (laughs) land. So
0: so the point that I'm trying to make here is I I feel as if she's accomplished exactly what she set out to do. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you're working for a distillery that produces a product that's so consistent? How do you create a program that allows for uh, a, a wide, wide spectrum of seemingly unending differences in flavors. And I think that she's nailed it. And I have 12 bottles that are, each one is different from the next. And I guarantee I'll, I'll do some more visits and there'll be another shop that has a bottle and I'll have to taste it and I'll fall in love with it and I'll have to buy it. And and so I think it's a really smart program that... that um, she should be very proud of it's oh, Without uh, any yeah. shadow
1: of a yeah. doubt, and in the in the part of the interview that we're about to throw back over to, Jane actually mentions how many possible combinations there are, and your jaw will hit the floor, dear listener.
0: I think it's like a one point twenty one gigawatts is the number <laughs> times eighty eight miles an hour. <laughs>
1: private select which is a single barrel program it is so how, how did that come about
2: um it came about rob is really passionate it's interesting having worked through you know bill's leadership and then rob and they're so similar in some ways but different in others and, and rob is really passionate and very sentimental about his grandparents and how they started this brand and that story and that journey. And I think because he's a generation removed from it. And when you think about makers in the 1950s, bourbon wasn't exactly popular.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like
2: his business model. If, if, if I go into the bank in 1953 and going, I'm going to start a bourbon distillery from scratch and I'm going to wait six years to bottle and yeah. sell 250 cases. If I'm the bank guy, I'm going to get the hell out <laughs> of here. This is the worst business plan ever.
1: Ever. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing that it started in that decade.
2: And for 22 years, this bourbon was only sold in the state
1: of Kentucky. Oh, for 22 years? For
2: 22 years, it was only really distributed in the state, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, in a state where at that time, 70% of the state still had prohibition. And there's only 4.5 million people today, right? <laughs> like, again... <laughs> terrible, but like the whole plan was he wanted to make something his, uh, maybe, Rob always says, the goal was maybe that some of the finest bars and restaurants in Louisville and Lexington would sell this whiskey. That's a terrible plan. Like, <laughs> worst plan ever. Um, But it, the goal of Makers was he wanted his words, and I've read all these documents over the years. Bill has just archives and archives. And he talked about he wanted a whiskey because the TW brand was just, they weren't proud of it. And he wanted the goal with makers. He wanted something. He would be proud to serve his friends sure. at a dinner party. Wow. So wow. 22 years, it was only sold here in Kentucky. And the fact the state kept this brand alive when no one gave yeah. a shit about bourbon. Yeah. It meant, it means a lot to Rob. Yeah. And so Rob said, I want, people have been asking for single barrels of makers for decades. Hmm. I want us to be thoughtful about giving back to the people who've given us so much. Hmm. So that was really where we started. Okay. And because we didn't feel like we could do a traditional single barrel and feel good about it. I love single barrels. I love the nuance. I love the whole, you know, with Blanton's coming out in 84 and just changing up the industry. Right. Yep. Um, But we work to consistency. The fact that we're going to hand rotate 120,000 barrels probably this year, right? It's insane. So the fact, if I brought you single barrels, it it just, they're not that different because we work hard to make them taste the same. So we Mm, thought, okay, we thought, okay, we can't really do it the way everyone else does it because it's just not that interesting and we wouldn't feel good. It really would be just about, making a sale mm-hmm. so we stepped back and 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 thought about what Bill's goal was with 46 and it was creating a maker's mark for his palette okay and we thought that's what we need to do let's partner with these customers that have yeah. kept the lights on and let's let them create their own expression of maker's mark versus us rolling out single barrels and them choosing something yes so Um, What we did, we took this idea of finishing, and it was a really different approach, and it's probably more what blenders deal with when you look at, like, Japanese or scotch or Irish whiskey, you know, um, is different barrels with different characteristics and how you put flavor together. Mm -hmm. We kind of took that philosophy of let's deconstruct the makers, let's look at flavor camps, let's then create staves that actually exaggerate and push the whiskey into flavor camps. Okay. And then you can actually create a taste vision on what you want your makers to taste like based on where our, our key flavor wheel. Mm-hmm. And then we'll build a single barrel choosing different wood to actually create a unique expression with the taste profile that you want.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. And then how long will the, the customer, the client, the bar, the restaurant, how long will that maker's mark be in their cask?
2: It's only nine weeks, so it's the same as 46. It's a nine-week finish, so we had to create a little bit of guardrails for consistency and predictability. So because 46 peaks at nine weeks, we said it was really just an arbitrary, okay, nine weeks, we understand that. Okay, we're always going to start with maker's cask. All right, it's always going to be 10 staves. So these were the parameters. Mm -hmm. Now it's, we got to go find the wood and we got to do all the research to make sure people are coming in and blind. You're making whiskey. Yeah. You're not choosing whiskey. Yeah. There's a little bit of a risk factor there, right? Yep. Um, so we actually spent, I spent with Diane Rogers and a couple of other folks here. Diane's our quality manager. Um, we spent 6 months doing nothing but tasting every single iteration of this whiskey and tasting notes to make sure like you couldn't it didn't taste bad.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Right? right? You couldn't screw <laughs> it you up. You couldn't
2: screw it up. Right,
1: we're back to the same motto.
2: Um so we have 5 different staves. You can choose any combination of 10. There's a thousand and one combination. So we tasted and tested every single one of those thousand and one. Dedication. It actually it was fun. Um it was hard. It was a hard task. It sounds easy. It was not easy. It was fun
1: for the first 474 and then we're not even halfway yet.
2: But, and then we did a lot of the analytics. We talked a little bit about the science of it. We also ran analytics on all of these to understand because um, what happens is uh, customers come in and they learn about where all the flavor comes from in makers. And then they craft a taste vision. So I always say, like, if I were creating my own expression, I love the baking. I call them grandma spices, but I love uh, the baking spices. And I love, Makers has so much fruit. There's a lot of fruit characteristics in Makers Mart. Okay. So for me personally, I would go almost like a Christmas expression, right? Like, I go big fruit, big spice, nice. fruitcake, fruit cake and a bottle.
1: No argument from me. That's
2: my husband has a huge sweet tooth.
1: Ah, uh, okay.
2: He would go heavy vanilla, heavy caramel, heavy butterscotch, honey. Those uh-huh. notes we could never make a barrel together. Uh huh. Because we we wouldn't agree.
1: <laughs> Thankfully, making a baby is easier than making a barrel. And, so
2: you know what? <laughs> Gestation time's a lot shorter on the baby. True story. <laughs> True story. Um, so
1: hashtag real talk. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, so we, I don't even remember what we were talking about.
1: <laughs> the, the casks. So, so the, the, the staves. Yeah. So, so there's five. There's five. So, so what are the five staves and what are the flavors from those five staves? So, um,
2: there's our baked American pure too. It's the only American oak in the group. Here's the thing. We do not care about, um, the type of oak or the type of cooking process. We give independent stave very specific, flavor direction they go away and tinker with the wood they come back we test things and we kind of tweak and go from there okay. so the baked american pure two stave it's american white oak it's been seasoned for about 12 months and then it's been baked in a convection oven at medium to low temperature okay. for approximately 25 plus hours okay and so it really uh breaks down that lignin and it's our for lack of a more it's our vanilla stave okay so it really amplifies vanilla. There's some fruit characteristics. It's a little bit brighter. It's a little bit lighter. Our seared French cuvet stave is French white oak um, that's been seasoned for 18 months in France. It's been actually grooved, so it has 22% more surface area. It's put through that infrared oven to a certain time and temperature. And the goal of it, we wanted to up the viscosity level to give the whiskey a little more tactile sensation Brilliant. because that was something we cared about. And then it's got sweetness, but the pure two is more bright light sweetness and this is more rich sweetness. Okay. And so it's kind of honey ish to me. Okay. Uh, the makers 46, stave is French white Oak, just like, uh, the cuvee, same oven as cuvee. It doesn't have those grooves. It's cooked a few minutes longer. So it's really heavy in caramel, dried fruit, I get almond notes in it. Um, it is our chameleon stave. It can be anything you need it to be. That that stave, 500 wood iterations in for me, I've never found a piece of wood that does what Makers 46 does. Like that stave is just magic. Hmm. Um, the next one is our roasted French mocha stave, French white oak, same as the 46, same as the cuvee, um, season 18 months in France. They're actually putting in a convection oven, high temperature, roasting the hell out of it. The last flavor you get before you're like burning the house down, acrid, is a small pop of cocoa, coffee, and, and almond. Okay, it's very subtle. That stave was created for finish makers um, because of the sweetness. Our whiskey doesn't have a ton of astringency, mm-hmm. right? The finish it, it doesn't. It's it's like a medium finish. We wanted something that gave a lot of finish without being overly bitter. Um, That stave is more bittersweet, and it's very dry. So the cocoa flavor was kind of this bonus. It was really more about finish than flavor with that one. And then the last one is our toasted French spice stave. Uh, French white oak in a convection oven, high heat to blast, and then they pull it down to get this gambit of big, bright flavor particularly in the baking spice, it has these fruit characteristics that come through as well. You typically don't get fruit from wood. Fruit's more created during fermentation and oxidation to create esterification. So it does something to the whiskey that it lets the fruit shine through a little bit more. Hmm. And it's very vibrant, very bright. I love it. It's an amazing stave, but it's pretty polarizing.
1: Those are the five. That's brilliant. Sorry, that's I'm no, that's so exactly much. what I wanted to hear. That was a hundred percent spot on. Thank you. Um obviously everybody's got their own profile and what they're looking for, and your barrel build would be different from your husband's barrel build. Do you find those who come here to make one of these barrels, do you t- tend to find are they moving a particular direction? Are you seeing a flavor profile that tends to Rise to the top?
2: It's all over the place. And what's interesting, they're making whiskey now that you're making it in the opposite season. You're getting it. So we try to be very, first off, like, hey, it's 95 degrees outside, but you're going to be drinking this in January. Ah, So get seasons out of the brain.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you
2: tend, I tend to drink seasonally, like at home right now. Um, I love makers and tonic with lemon. I know that sounds weird, but I love it. Um, So... Um, we we think about that, but most people have a pretty specific point of view that are doing this. Okay. They're coming in as a restaurant and they're, they're thinking about the style of restaurant and what works with that. Or they're coming in as a bar and maybe they want it in a cocktail, maybe they don't. Um, we do see regionality come into effect, which is interesting. Um, in what way? You know, certain states or markets might uh, trend towards certain flavor profiles or staves. Okay. Uh, but it's really all over the board and you really get what's so much fun. I don't host these anymore. Um, we have a team that does it and they're amazing, but it's what's so much fun is you get in the customer's mindset. So they craft, we have them craft a taste vision with a thousand and one choices. They need to get pretty articulate pretty quickly Uh or, (laughs) I mean, in the beginning we didn't know what we were doing. So like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> our, our pilot season, everybody was a guinea pig. And I remember Mike Miller and I sitting in a room from Delilah's for like six hours. And I'm like, I can't taste anything. <laughs> and it's like,
1: should we start again tomorrow?
2: You know, because we didn't know how to guide. Mike is
1: brilliant as well. Love Mike on the podcast. Yeah, yep.
2: we didn't know how to guide people. So um, now we really know how to guide people and get them there. But you get in the customer's mindset and. And when you finally get to the perfect combination, you're like, oh, I bet this has been done a million times. It seems so obvious, Uh right? And then you look and you're like,
1: no one's ever done
2: this. (laughs) But you, they all taste good. They're all just so different.
1: Thanks again to Jane Bowie for her time and insight and absolute passion for Maker's Mark. There is no doubt that she loves that brand as much, if not more, than the people who who run it, uh, the mm-hmm. people who own it, the people mm-hmm. who founded it. She is a Kentucky woman through and through, and and loves all things Maker's Mark and all things bourbon and all things Kentucky. So, yeah, <laughs> just, it, it was just, a treat. Can't wait to, to revisit the distillery, see her again. Uh, let me
0: let me ask one quick question. When 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 you and she first started talking, mm-hmm. and she at one point mentioned and it was a bit further into the conversation she mentioned she was from kentucky mm-hmm. before that i didn't hear any southern accent and then a bit later on it started <laughs> to kick in with her and i'm i just want to be certain you didn't have anything to drink like accents always get stronger after you're sipping whiskey.
1: <laughs> no, no, we were just sharing cups of coffee and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and water. It was fantastic.
0: All right, all right. Fair clear enough.
1: head. I had a clear head. Oh, <laughs> I like that. I
0: like that. It was, it was not brilliant. what
1: I have today. So yeah, it was, it was an absolute blast. And so I told her the next time we go back, I'll be sure to bring Joshua Hatton in tow and we can explore some more aspects of the distillery.
0: Beautiful. Well, uh, we will kick it back to to Jane for her misconception at the end of the podcast. Uh, normally, at this time, we would share some news, but we really don't have much news to share. Yeah, we're all up to moment. date on
1: the news front, which is nice.
0: Yeah, that's kind of nice. Uh, but we're not up to date on some emails that we got. So I thought we should uh, respond to some emails. What do you think?
1: Perfect. Yep, sounds like a good idea. Okay.
0: Uh, we got one from someone named Dan Sark Fly. Mm-hmm. And he says, Dear Joshua and Jason, he got, he got the uh, the order perfect. He even put he even put your name in parentheses, which I freaking loved. But uh, anyway, he says, Dear Joshua and Jason, I just listened to podcast number 68 and you touted the virtues of Sherry. I love what sherry casts do to whiskey and I would love to drink more sherry but live in a small college town with almost no selection He's in uh, uh, Gainesville Florida If mm. there are such great deals available in sherry why not bottle one for single cast nation you already did a mescal that I bought through um, through your retail line with 21 spirits so why not branch out more whether you think whether you think you are, or not, you two are influencers and could make this happen for a lot of us, like you have with new whiskies. Whether you do it or not, thanks for your hard work, Dan.
1: Thanks, Dan. I'm going to pivot back to Dave Broome to just very quickly say, I still don't think we're influencers. I do think we have a nation who are willing to trust our palates trust our selections and are willing to see us curate some selections and as the mezcal showed yeah the nation will absolutely support us have we changed how mezcal is being produced and sold absolutely not did we have a supportive nation behind us who sold it out absolutely we did and we thank them very much for that so with that said you and I would love to bottle a sherry. I would have no qualms about bottling a sherry.
0: I have no qualms about it at all. It's something that I am pushing for, and um, I haven't spoken with Jason about this yet, but I've been looking at my calendar for a time in which we can go back to Jerez and visit some sherry producers and and maybe source some good single cask sherry yeah. so whether it's going to happen or not is one thing uh but it is it is on our radar i think perhaps a bit more on my radar but i could but i could be wrong it's something i think about wrong, quite sir. am i wrong very wrong okay. oh yes all right all right, all right. you yeah, no. Me?
1: i'm i'm eager to get some sherry in there
0: okay fair enough
1: cool watch the space as they say it'll be a 2020 thing it's too late in 2019 to be a this year thing, but twenty twenty thing.
0: Yeah, twenty twenty thing for sure. Uh, Perfect. We got we got an email to from Philippe Fanavong, mm-hmm. and it's a long email, so I don't want to read the whole thing here.
1: Okay, give us the give us the pertinent portion. Okay,
0: Philippe says there's a single grain Scotch whiskey. Uh, that is from Loch Lomond Distillery. And it says, it's being offered at local shops where the grain is all malted barley. And so, yes, this is true. The Loch Lomond Distillery, they actually have three different kinds of stills. They have copper pot stills. They have Lomond stills, which are classified as a version of copper pot stills. And then they have continuous stills. But for all three styles of stills, they're using malted barley. And uh, he goes on, he says, the explanation on their website is that this must be labeled as single grain because it was distilled in a column still. When I mentioned this to Jason, he said that doesn't make sense because single malt scotch whiskey doesn't have a requirement on the type of still. Which I thought was also the case, but then I looked it up he said, I hate to call out a Scotsman um, on UK <laughs> <laughs> uh, regulations, but according to the Scotch Whiskey Technical File, uh, there are requirements for Scotch whiskey to be single malt, to be single malt Scotch whiskey: a, distilled at one distillery; b, distilled from water and malted barley without the additional, without the addition of any other cereals; and c, distilled in pot stills. He goes on. He says, "I suspect that's a common misconception for a lot of folks. Uh, definitely, one I had. However, the the story was that compared the whiskey to the Nika coffee malt, and so he assumed that the Japanese mm. treat single malt and single grain the same way the Scots do, and it's something that he should have known. So, this, in a way, Jason, is your own misconception because Philippe is it. he's one hundred percent correct. So." Basically, the way Scotch is classified is it has to be from malted barley and water. Those are the two components that it needs to have. And then it specifies distilled in batches in copper pot stills. So it can't be continuously distilled and it can't be in a column still. It has to be a pot still. So... I mean, that's the beauty of single grain scotch whiskey. That word single has nothing to do with the grains going into the column. The column still, you can use any kind of cereal you want. It could be rye, it could be corn, it could be barley. It could be unmalted barley or malted barley. It could be whatever. The single is, of course, the, it's made at one distillery.
1: That's also the beauty of this industry. There's a mm-hmm. nice little nugget of information that was stored away in regulations that mm-hmm. that in my, what, 20... 23 years, 24 years of of being around the industry completely escaped me, completely escaped my attention. And I I love the fact that that Philippe can bring that up. And from this day forth, I have that little nugget of information uh, tucked away in my brain until I forget it, because being 45 comes with its own problems. Yeah, like
0: like pronouncing Bowie like Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <repeatedly>. <laughs> that does seem apropos <laughs> for this
1: episode it really does um, um so yeah i will i will write it out a hundred times and see if that commits it to memory for me
0: he had one last question here i'm, I'm gonna throw okay. it in here he and he says now for the fun question <laughs> that, that one was plenty fun how was fun is fun. this gonna get oh we shall see he says there are so many questions closed distilleries that people have fallen in love with (laughs) and their expressions are now very much sought after. Brora, Imperial, Dallas Dew, Port Ellen, the list goes on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people love what they can't have. I know, right? Uh, With your experience picking casks and seeing what consumers are demanding today, which of the closed distilleries of Scotland do you think would be doing best in today's market? Which do you think would be able to make a product that falls most in line with a, with what modern consumers want to drink? Hmm. That is interesting, isn't it? That?
1: That's a great question. So, and as always, yeah. we're asking for the first time on air, and not giving it any prior thought. So, well, let the, me let me the powers of Grey
0: Skull by the powers of Grey Skull. Let me lead was something interesting about uh, the, the Port Ellen distillery. This was a distillery that when it was open it was, you know, making malt for blends but any IB, you know, independently bottled Port Ellens, younger Port Ellens at the time people weren't loving them. It was not the flavor profile at the time. Younger Port Ellen, it was more phenolic. It was a bit rough around the edges, uh, heavy in style, which is actually something people nowadays—sorry, mm-hmm. which is actually something people nowadays really look for. So I think Port yeah. Ellen would 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 be doing would be going great guns if they started producing whiskey again. If only they would reopen. <sighs> and start producing whiskey again. Next you'll be saying Brora would do well if it came back.
3: Uh, you Where know. do
0: you get these crazy notions from, Joshua? Uh, so one one thing that I would say is I, I don't know that Imperial would do so well because it, it's, it's a very specific style of whiskey with that focuses heavily on the minerality and... I think there are a lot of drinkers that, that prefer sweet and prefer peat. And, and minerality isn't always something that people like, really search for. Am I right or am I wrong?
1: Well, the one that immediately comes to mind for me is M- You know, Modern Lafroy is very minerally. That's and they continue to be selling great guns. That's a good point. So I'm, I'm not sure minerality uh, would be a a game changer, a game breaker mm. for for the Imperial Distillery. My mind, mm-hmm. obviously coming from air and being an Ayrshire boy, my mind goes to the lowland distilleries that we've seen close. And I yeah. think about a Little Mill and I think about a Rosebank. I think about the rebirth of Bladnach. Mm. Our... Are consumers ready for,
0: for a Lowland charge? I think they're ready for Rosebank. I think, I think Rosebank has been one of those ones which, like Dallas, do, like Brora, you know, Rosebank go, sells for a lot of money nowadays. And I think people are starting to appreciate what they hadn't appreciated so much back when that mm-hmm. distillery was open. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I think it was good of, of Ian McLeod. They now own Rosebank. They're building rebuilding that distillery, and, and they're looking to produce whiskey in the exact same manner that, they, that the Rosebank had previously. And so I think for today's modern palate, it's going to be great. The interesting thing is, though, my understanding is that distillery will be finalized in 2021 or something. And so the first, Mm -hmm. you know, let's call it a 12-year-old, right? Your first age-stated whiskey is going to be 10 or 12. Like, what is the palate going to be like come 2031 or 2033? Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's, it's interesting. I will will say
1: this, in whiskey, though, as I sit here looking 10 years and 12 years into the future, it Mm -hmm. seems like a long way away. It seems like, oh... Crumbs will be in flying cars, and and whiskey will have to have, you know, s- you'll have to be like a tire fire or something extreme. Mm. But when I look backwards, the passing of t- ten years and twelve years hasn't made as much of a difference to the industry and the palate as I would imagine when I'm looking forward. So I, I- think about Kilhomon. You know, look at Coleman, you know, they've got their plans in place. They're talking at Fishiel in 2004. They're releasing their inaugural in 2009. Now we've got STR Cask in 2019. Has there been an evolution there? Yeah, absolutely. Have they built flavors? Yeah, absolutely. Is it radically different in 2019? 15 years after Anthony first presented at Fishiel? I don't think so. I think that I think that fifteen year vision is is well in place, and so to now cast an eye ten and twelve years forward, maybe it's not gonna be that different. Maybe these this resurgent lowlands that I'm mm-hmm. starting to suggest may very well just be beginning at that point. Maybe it'll be in full flow at that point, but I don't think it'll be past. I don't think um flavors will have passed it by. In, in a
0: simple decade. But, th- but think about what Jane Bowie had said. There was a point in time where where bourbon wasn't doing much. Wasn't doing much at mm-hmm. all. And then and then you you flick a switch and now there's this massive bourbon boom. And and I think that transition of what palates are looking for happened really fast. And
1: put some numbers on that. How how fast is really fast in your mind?
0: Uh, Five years. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. No. I I don't disagree with you. What's What's striking to me though is, it doesn't come in within five years and go out within ten. It might come in within five years and but then have a ten year, fifteen year, twenty year. Lifespan, yeah. And so when I when I think about Rosebank opening and we're saying good ten and twelve years down the line, how how different will it be? I don't think it'll be strikingly different because I think those five years of going into it and building it will mm. still have a seven year lifespan. There's no doubt I, to me about you, that.
0: You could you could very well be right, but we another thing that you have to consider is what history has shown us and how quickly the popularity of whiskey can ebb and flow and a lot of the changes into what people are drinking whether whether their palate stays the same or not a lot of what helps inform what people are drinking is what the global economy is like and and what the attitudes are between the previous generation and the next generation right you know come the yeah go ahead no, no, you finish your thought? Well, vodka and gin can be cheap. If all of a sudden we have another, you know global recession, which is very possible, people still want to drink, whether it's in good times or bad times people are drinking. So are they going to be continuing to spend 50, 80, 100 dollars on a bottle? Or are they going to say, you know what? I'm just going to pe- I'm just going to spend uh, 15 bucks on smearing off and grab grab a bottle of cranberry juice and still have a tasty little drink and still get to drink. You know, I think I think what's in someone's wallet will help dictate what's going to move off a shelf. Now their taste might not change. It may get to the point where they say times are a little rougher. I have to tighten the belt. Come Christmas time, I'm going to buy myself that nice bottle, or I'm going to buy my my wife that nice bottle, or, or what have you. Um, well, it, I ahead. think the perfect example of that right now is
1: if I'm talking about Lowlands, might be the next region to be discovered. Bladnick is testing the market right now with some expensive releases from a Lowland distillery. Very expensive. And, and to yeah. your to your point, as somebody looks to explore a new category. Do they run up against the price of it? So maybe one thing, not that we have anything to do with the Rosebank plans, but maybe one thing that we hope the people at Rosebank will keep in mind is, yeah, there's a lot of expense here. Don't try and recoup all your costs in one day or one year or five years. Mm -hmm. Think about where flavor lies along with price and see if that category can build around flavor. Yeah. without being priced out. And that seems to be the thing that's worked for bourbon up to this point. You know, I, I went out, I picked up the Maker's Mark Cast Strength, cost me 50 bucks. That mm. took me back to 2004. Yeah, 2004, when I was first buying LaFroy 10 Cast Strength in America for $45 a bottle. Yeah. Right? The, the reason LaFroy 10 Cast Strength became one of my absolute favorite number one go-to drams is that it was fantastic. It fit my palate wonderfully. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of alcohol for $45. Yeah. If yeah. bourbon has now got a cast strength at, at 50, boom, you're checking the same boxes. If we wandered away from that, maybe you start to see some differences within an industry. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. Okay. So yeah. so with all that said, mm-hmm. we're going to pivot back to this with Jane Bowie later on. Good. But I've got one more part of a question to ask you before we go back to misconception and then when we had a quick conversation with Jane about the future of
0: the industry. To ask me, okay. Yeah,
1: so right. so this comes in from Ariel Green who mm-hmm. wrote a, a great email, a whole bunch of questions that we were able to uh, answer over email, but there was one lingering question that I wanted us to cover in the podcast. So the question is, I notice that the original post about the Beaumont, this is our 1989 30 year old Beaumont that went Mm -hmm. on sale August 19, this is going live August 28, I have no idea what the Beaumont currently looks like, but that's what happened. I noticed that the original post about the Beaumont said 200 bottles. But the episode, where we were pimping it in the news section, Uh said 150. What happened to 50 bottles? Or (laughs) did they never exist? Uh, We know they existed at some point, uh, but they they no longer exist. Why why did we lose 50 bottles, Joshua, from an initial announcement to a follow-up announcement?
0: The unfortunate thing is this happens quite a lot. So when 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 and not when just an us indi- and not just us just to yeah thank you that's that's uh, well clarified that's that's good when we buy a cask of whiskey <laughs> we always ask them to re gauge the cask true and, and by that we're saying you know what's the ABV how many liters of alcohol are in there and that's kind of a difficult thing to. Uh, to gauge with, without dumping the cask, it's it's very difficult to figure out. And so, when we got the initial, when we <laughs> when when we got the initial estimation of it, we said, "Look, we just need we need the ABV for the label because we have to submit the label to the TTB. We wanted the ABV to be exact." And so I said, if you can gauge the ABV and, and give us an idea of, of how many bottles are go- going to be in there, that'd be great. So what they did is they, they basically have this tool. I call it an ABVometer. Uh, you know, it's like this. It almost looks like a... Can you get those on Amazon? You can. It looks like an, a nerf gun with a digital readout <laughs> and a little straw at the bottom of the handle. And they <laughs> That's exactly
1: what it looks like, right?
0: <laughs> and they 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 dip that straw into the cask and they it, it pulls some of the whiskey out of there and it says, This is your ABV. And so at the time it was I think it's forty-four point one percent is the is the ABV on it. And then they take the cask and they weigh it, just to get an idea of the of the bulk liquid that's in there, both the alcohol and all of the other you know co- components in there, water and other fatty acids and blah 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 etc. And you basically have to guesstimate. You know, similar if, if you were going to, if you're going to weigh yourself on a scale and you're wearing shoes and you're wearing pants and you're wearing a shirt, you say, okay, my shoes weigh two pounds, my, my jeans weigh certain. And so you step on it and it says 175 pounds and you say, you know what, I'm going to take 10 pounds off of that because of all the stuff I'm wearing. So when they I, weigh- I actually weigh right? myself with an anvil just so I can take <laughs> off even more. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's funny because it's true. Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And so what they'll do is they put the cask on the scale. They make an assumption that the cask weighs X, and so they take that amount and al- You know, the liquid has a certain weight to it. And they say, you know what, you're going to have around 200 bottles to this, and 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 so we said, you know what, that that's great. We'll put 200 bottles on the label once they finally dumped it we found that we had 150 bottles and the assumption is we we have two things going on here so first off the the cat the weight of the cask aside you're always going to lose liquid setting up a bottling line there's always going to be loss and so you've got that and then if the cask if the because a cask is a handmade thing and because the staves are typically handmade to, to fit this sort of barrel, which is a puzzle, um, the cask was a heavier cask than others. Now, an American standard barrel is supposed to be a vessel that will hold 200 liters or 53 gallons. However, we've seen barrels that have been slightly larger. They've held more spirit in there, which means there's more wood. And the same with hogsheads. Hogsheads are supposed to be 250 liters, or around 60 gallons, and we've seen some hogsheads side by side that were, you know, one was much smaller than the other. Which one is the right size? So, you have this assumption of what does the barrel weigh, plus what you're going to lose when you're setting up that cask to be bottled. And we've lost as much as 24 bottles in the past. And and we said, you know, what the hell's going on? Or, you know, are these people taking bottles? Is it Christmas time? And they're just, you know, socking them away for, for that? And the answer is no. It's just you have these certain um, unknowns uh, when when you're gauging a cask and you're working on assumptions.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Uh that's There are these vagaries that we work with that we always want it to be accurate. We always want it to be precise. Um, one of the things I was saying in, in California, first fill, second fill and refill. We use these terms like they're cast in stone. You don't know the life that the first fill had. You don't know the life that the second fill had. Yeah. You find really active second fill casks. You find really quiet first fill casks. It's you know, Jane even said it earlier in today's episode. They're just, you know, about small batch. There there are no hard and fast descriptions of these things mm. in the whiskey rule book. And so there are fakeries, uncertainty, assumptions. And here we are. Mm. The good news is for dealing in Scotland, we always know exactly how many bottles we're buying, regardless of whether that number dips or not. In America, it is not the case as we
0: have explained many times on many different episodes. And and for for just I'm going to clarify that really quickly for those who may not have heard us talk about that. In the US, typically speaking when we're buying barrels of bourbon or rye or light whiskey, they say here's the barrel, here's how old it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to cost you X. And now you, we could receive that barrel, and it could have three bottles worth of liquid in there. It doesn't matter. That's how much it costs. Or it could have 175 bottles worth of liquid in there. It doesn't matter. That's how much it costs. Where in Scotland, we're paying by the regaged liters of alcohol whatever comes out of that cask, not... Whatever that total cask would, would cost. So we're paying for liquid only and liquid that we know we're getting, not the unknowns of could we have a little, could we have a lot? Could we could it be just right?
1: It's a very different way of doing business. Yeah. And
0: <laughs> yep.
1: there's the, there's those vagaries again. So mm-hmm. brilliant. That was that was lovely covering some emails. Nice to catch up
0: with the mm-hmm. listeners, catch up with the inbox. Do you want to tell people how to get in touch with us if they want to email us I usually um, do that but I want you to do
1: it fly to wherever we're having a tasting wherever Mm -hmm. it is in the United States hand us a handwritten note with your question on it we will store that in our pocket and if we remember to pull it out before we put those pants through the wash cycle we will ask it (laughs) on the pad cost
0: (laughs) that's about Uh, right isn't it for those of you that don't want to buy a plane ticket to do that, there's another way? There are four other ways. Oh, gosh. Do tell, Joshua. Do yeah. tell. So you can email us, questions at one nation under whiskey. Okay. Dot email. Com. Okay. Yeah. Check. Right. You could tweet at us. Oh, and we boy. Are People still at, do that? They do. They do. They, right. they're, okay. There are a lot of twats out there.
1: I thought it was twatter, like Tip. trotter, but twatter.
0: No twat twatterton twatterton that's that's where it resides that's where it (laughs) resides you can tweet at us at one nation whiskey you could instagram us at one nation under whiskey and then finally you can go to our facebook page go to the if you know if you're on your phone or on your computer go to the little search bar search for one nation under whiskey we have a group and we also have a business page and you can pose questions there. And remember, dear listeners, just like our our friend Jane Bowie at Maker's Mark, just like the good people at Maker's Mark, they spell their whiskey without an E. We also do not use the E in whiskey. So if you want to reach out to us, make sure you spell whiskey without that pesky little E in there. Did Jane tell you why they only why they don't use the E in whiskey? She did. Uh Aha. Do you want to uh, elucidate?
1: The family Mm -hmm. had lineage Mm -hmm. from the wonderful country of Scotland. Mm -hmm. And in starting up Maker's Mark in 1954, they wanted to give a nod to that
0: lineage. I can appreciate that. Isn't that nice? Yeah.
1: Really
0: wonderful. Simple, straightforward, makes complete sense.
1: Isn't that great? I, I just love it when you run into people who say, no, American whiskey must be spelled with an E. And I always say, Catofton Creek doesn't do it. George, George Dickel doesn't
0: do it. Yeah. Maker's Mark, the TTB doesn't even do it.
1: <laughs> and that's that's my <laughs> ace in the hole.
0: The TTB doesn't even do it. So it's, yeah,
1: it's wonderful. One of those fun little geeky throwaway points. Yep, so. yep, yep, yep. Okay, Joshua, we
0: better get out of here. Okay, let's, let's hand it over. Back to the good Jane Bowie for her misconception. And uh, do you, you want to just call it quits there? Let her have the final word? Absolutely. Jane will move
1: from misconception onto what she sees for the future of, of bourbon. It's the question mm. you and I are always asking our industry types. What's their always. insight? And she didn't hesitate to give an answer. So thanks again. And thanks a million to Jane Bowie for her time. Her insight and just being awesome I just love my time with her can't wait to take you back to the distillery Joshua can't wait yep and we'll have some some more fun times with Jen, <laughs> Jenny and Dane
0: can you guess what I was trying to say? Jenny and Dane yeah <laughs> that's uh, and their last names are are um, uh, don't Bodder Bodder and Poey <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you try that again oh boy Oh, boy. Uh, We will
1: have some good times on site with Jane and Denny at Maker's Mark. Here's Jane again.
0: All right. Cheers, Jason. And cheers, listeners. Cheers, Joshy. Cheers, listeners. Clank, clank.
2: I think um, age is a big one for us because we don't use an age statement. And actually, we overage barrels intentionally that we do seminars with. So I have over-matured makers mm. that we, all those years in the UK, especially when, to your point, the scotch mentality, older is better, but when you look at aging differences, holy cow, yeah. right? We did an experiment with Glenmorangie back in the day where we swapped barrels to actually learn. We sent makers barrels there. They sent Glenmorangie barrels here. Nice. And through that one experiment, they found that about three to four years in Scotland was equal to one year in Kentucky. Mm. So the aging one was something that was, it was big. And in fact, it was such a big one. The the distillery pulled old barrels for me and bottled and sent to me in the UK to let people understand
1: why. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, yeah. So it really is about balance in anything, right? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Do you ever have to combat people thinking you're hiding something by not having an age statement?
2: I haven't found that. I think traditionally in bourbon, we didn't have age statements. Age statements weren't a thing traditionally bourbon Mm. did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's only, I think in the last 10 to 15 years, you've really seen that change. So, I also think we were getting to a consumer that's very well-educated, very discerning. They're able to read through the bullshit. Um, it's a fun time to be in the industry. And I learn from consumers all the time, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way to know everything about what happens in our industry. And the history, <laughs> what's funny, this is what's hilarious. <laughs> what I would have told you 12 years ago about how we started using new charred oak is totally different than what I would tell you today. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like we're allowed to change our minds as we start getting more information, and I think that's okay, too. It's fun. It's a journey.
1: I love hearing you talk about the more educated consumer that you're that you're encountering, because we asked the same question at the end of the interview with Anthony Wills. Anthony Wills said the same thing. People who are now appearing at tastings have done some research. There are fewer moments when somebody is asking something completely out of left field, because... People now, at worst, have a baseline understanding. But then the people that you're encountering who would take the time to ask you a question are now knowledgeable in what they're asking you about. So I like hearing that. As we're just kind of talking about that growth, very final thing, we'll get out of here on this. What do you think the future looks like? We talked earlier about that crystal ball. where where do you see this going? Where do you see this heading?
2: You know, in the past, there's always been something that's derailed bourbon. Um, I don't know that it's blue skies all the way ahead, but i I think, I I think a lot of it's just getting started, and it's really exciting. You and I were talking earlier how many distilleries are opened up in America, and and the craft game, and it's so exciting to see what they're doing and and what people are coming up with so I guess my hope is we stay united as an industry we Mm -hmm. keep moving forward together I think regulations are important to protect the integrity of the liquid not going to get into that but um you know I think it's one of the things people are so shocked about with bourbon you talk about the color it's a hundred percent natural right yeah um it's an agricultural ingredient. People are obsessed with their food labels. I've been working with these bread labs, and holy shit! Like, <laughs> I am not. I don't cook. I don't bake. I don't make cocktails. Like, it's not my thing. But I, I've been working with these these bread experts and these grain experts, and they're like, read your loaf of bread, and they're like, how many ingredients? Do I-? And so now I'm like, I got to learn to bake bread. I'm uh-huh. feeding my kid this weird stuff. Uh huh. But if you think about a bourbon bottle, imagine you put the ingredients on a bottle of
1: bourbon. Yep.
2: It's water, it's grains, it's yeast, it's wood. Yep. That's amazing, right? Absolutely. So I, I think I think when I think about there's so much flavor and most people are doing things the right way and, and they're caring about the industry. And I think if we continue to make quality juice and we continue to get out there and, and share with people. I love... This industry is so welcoming. I remember when I started going over to Four Roses and Al Young spent like a whole day with me, right? A competitor to yeah. teach me what they did at Four Roses. Um yep. so I I think it's still we're going to grow and we're going to prosper and we're going to do it together.
1: Brilliant. Let's get out of here on that. Awesome. Cheers, Jane. Thank I appreciate you so your time. Much.